0: Guess what, cinephiles? I have just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S. So you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN.
1: Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So, like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you can actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They are on ExpressVPN, so you can, you can get access to, like, thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to this stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows. there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using Express VPN. And it's
0: incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Well, then let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I ain't that devil. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host on The Outlaw Nation and co-host of this uh, podcast and a voiceover guy. And huge Freddy cat so uh i am i am just interested to see uh uh, how we're gonna tackle this film in honor of halloween but uh i tell you what i had a fantastic experience watching this film so now i'm kind of really excited to talk about it with you steve
0: well and as you say it's halloween and we went into our uh list of choices from our patrons to see what scary movie they wanted us to look at the most and clay williams colton Blackscop. uh Colton Blackstock, Simon Bru- armed, and someone only known as The Kid <laughs> all chose William Friedkin's film of the, of the Blatty novel, The Exorcist. John, do you know how you first came to The Exorcist?
1: Yeah, man, I resisted this movie for a very, very long time. Just like Rosemary's Baby, which I only recently watched maybe a month or two ago. Um I It was one of these films that was outlawed in my house because my, my dad was uh, very religious, my mom religious. And these films were not allowed to be seen. And they had seen the films, but I was not allowed to see this. So it wasn't until I was in my 20s, kind of uh, back in Virginia, before I took off to Florida State, I remember that they had released the... Um, New edited version with new footage or whatever. Uh, And I went to go see it downtown for the first time ever at the Uptown in D.C. Uh, And I went by myself and I went to go see it. And I was just floored at how scared I was of it. Uh, And then saw it again subsequently a few years later, I think, in Tallahassee or maybe L.A. and got to see the spider crawl down the stairs from that as well. So, This is a film that I and I remember just being blown away by it when I saw it the first time and just shocked because people tell you what you're going to have heard through the years with this pea soup and all that. But the Crucifix stuff, I was just so shocked at how far they were able to go without getting an X rating uh, in this film. And, uh, you know, it was my first exposure to this idea of demonic possession, which is a very big deal in the Latino christian catholic community this idea of demons possessing people this idea of god and the devil fighting on earth for your soul uh so seeing it uh, through uh uh, friedkin's vision of this blatty
0: novel uh, and these great performances was just so overwhelming It's funny our stories in a weird way are kind of similar um for me i think i might have told this on on the show before but Mm -hmm. but I, I, I've i never liked scary movies because they <laughs> frighten me and I don't understand. I, I and there, There's actually been some research that there is like, there's something that you have a, a gene that means that fear getting scared leads to adrenaline releases endorphins that are really pleasant for some people. Yeah. And for other people sounds like more like you and me, yeah. you go like, well, I'm frightened. <laughs> I'm not happy, you know? I marvel at those people who are so into horror
1: films because I'm like, I, I, it's a visceral experience of fear the whole time. Yeah. How can you be so into it? I envy it. I envy because I, I, have to talk myself into
0: seeing horror films because it is, it's an experience that unsettles me. My, my son, by the way, is definitely going to be one of those people. Like already, he's on YouTube and he'll he'll go like, I want to see like images of Chucky or of It or of whatever. And I'm like, No, don't look at those. They'll scare you. And then they scare him. And then he does it again. And I'm like, why are you, why are you seeking out all this stuff? But I did not seek out all this stuff. And I can remember when this movie came out and I'm like five years old and the commercial would come on TV and I was so scared that I would run out of the room or I would jump behind the couch. Like I can so remember just a commercial, just scaring the absolute crap out of me. Mm -hmm. And, and like you. I heard all sorts of things about it. And as a huge Saturday Night Live fan, I had watched the Lorraine Newman Exorcist oh, right. yeah, many, many times. So I like knew a lot about it, and I saw it. It could have been the same night, because I saw it when they did that re-release, and I saw it in the Chinese theater, and had a very strong visceral reaction. Yeah, And that is the last time I saw it until this week, where oh. I I... I read the book because I felt like I wanted, you know, I try to do that if it's not too long. And so I read totally. the book and uh, it's good, but it's really a good book. It's, it's mm-hmm. very well-written and then watched it. And this week and again, man, this is a lot of a movie. And and I'm going to say something. I don't think I've ever said on the cinephiles before. I'm going to put a, 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 a warning out i should put two warnings out one warning is that we're going to deal with some stuff in this film that can be very offensive particularly to religious people and particularly to you know seeing what happens to this young girl it can be very offensive so if you listen to the show with your kids then maybe this is one that you should be very careful about but i'm going to give a second warning too and that warning is for whatever reason man, William Friedkin rubs me the wrong way. Like, (laughs) more than any... How is that a warning? You've got to write your opinion on that. I I know, but it's like, normally, you know, we've talked about all sorts of directors and (laughs) talked about abusive situations on the set. We've talked about arrogant directors, demanding directors, angry directors. talked about directors that made people cry. And we've certainly had our criticisms of all these people. But for whatever reason, Friedkin in particular, his particular arrogance just pisses me off. The only, the only other director I can think of that pisses me off this much is probably um, his name just flew out of my head. Transformers. Uh, Michael Bay. Oh, Michael Bay. Wow yeah Michael Bay pisses me off too. It's that same sort of smug, arrogant and abusive dismissive sort of character that just like right. bugs me. So that's my that's my warning. Okay. Um, let's, I that's I, I have some, the pre-production is actually really interesting. so it's written of course, by William Peter Blatty. I didn't realize that he was a screenwriter who wrote for Blake Edwards comedies. Oh. In the 60s. That's where he started. <laughs> he also happened to be on Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life as a contestant. That's awesome. Which is awesome. And then he decided he, he was out of work, couldn't find work, and he really wanted to prove that he could write serious things outside of light comedy. And man, he, <laughs> he went there. Um and uh, this, is, this whole thing is based on a true story, which is known as the Roland Doe Exorcism, which uh, took place in 1949. That word, true story, we might kind of revisit a bit as we go along. Um, but he writes the novel, and before, when it's in galleys, before it even comes out, he knows he wants a movie made of it, and so the person he sends it to is William Friedkin. Because he had seen French Connection, and he went, I want this movie to feel real to have that documentary feel. So he sends it to Friedkin. The book is immediately a huge hit, 17 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, studios buy it and they go, we don't want Friedkin. And they go after Stanley Kubrick, they go after Mike Nichols, both of whom turned the movie down. Mike Nichols. Okay. Mike Nichols, who it sounds like was in serious talks to do it. Wow. wow. And in the and in the end, he just couldn't deal with the kid stuff. That was sort of the, mm-hmm. he's like, I just can't see doing this with a young girl. Right, right. You know, and so he was out, and they hired Mark Ryder to direct the film. And then Blatty just was about to walk. And he said no, and they, they, they broke their deal with Ryder and hired Fried, Friedkin instead. Um, So it really is William Blatty that gets Friedkin to be on this film, right? Um, Casting they offered it to everyone. All the stars turned it down. Audrey Hepburn said she would do it But only if they filmed in Rome, which is where she was living. Oh, interesting. Yeah And I can't picture Audrey Hepburn like really like why would you do this? movie and Bancroft said she would do it but she was pregnant and they couldn't stall the film for nine months Wow Yeah They went after Jane Fonda. (laughs) Here's what Jane Fonda said. She said, this is a piece of capitalist rip-off bullshit. (laughs) 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 That's how she described the film. (laughs) That's awesome. And Ellen Burstyn, who I think knew Friedkin already, just and she's an unknown. She's a full unknown at this moment. She begs for the part. Studio was opposed. And finally, they cast her for the role of Karis, the studio wanted, Jack Nicholson. Oh, wow. Which is something. Yeah. Couldn't get him. And so they s- signed, they cast Stacy Keach. Stacy oh. Keach was hired to play the part. Wow. Uh, you have an intimate knowledge of Stacy Keach? I, I, I know Stacy. I think he would have been great in this part. I think so too. Um, and at the same time that this is happening, Friedkin goes to see a play in New York that's called That Championship Season. Do you know this play? I love this play. I remember watching the TV movie of this
1: that I think had Martin Sheen and Paul Sorvino and other people. This is a great,
0: great play, by the way. So I have a weird story about this play, which is that I think I mentioned that in college, I worked as a professional stage manager doing like equity waiver stuff. I stage managed that championship season in like 1989 or 1990, something like that. Well, the author of the play is Jason Miller. It's a Pulitzer Prize, Tony-winning play. And yeah. and and because Friedkin's about to do this Exorcist movie, he goes to Jason Miller because there's like a lapsed Catholic plot. And he says, hey, I'd like to talk to you about Catholicism because Friedkin's Jewish and he wanted right. to have this conversation. So he gives the book to Jason Miller. Jason Miller calls him up and says, that's me. I am this guy. I am <laughs> Father Karras. You have to let me audition. Now, this is a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. Right. You know, um, and so he goes, Well, we've cast Stacy Keach, and Miller convinces him to give him a screen test. So he, Jason Miller, flies out, does a screen test with Ellen Burstyn. uh, Freakin watches it, and they buy out Stacy Keach's contract and put playwright Jason Miller in the part. That's
1: insane.
0: Right? That is never done,
1: especially if you're going to get a name actor like Stacey Keach was at that time. And of yeah. course, for people who watched uh, for multiple decades, he's still a name actor in their, na- in their heads, but certainly someone at that
0: time who was very well known, I would imagine. And Miller had never acted in a movie before. Yeah. A complete unknown. And he had done some theater acting, but mostly right. known as a playwright. By the way, he is Jason Patrick's dad. I did not know that. I didn't either. Actor <laughs> Jason Patrick. Wow. Yeah. All right. They wanted Marlon Brando to play Marin. Why not? Why not? uh, But couldn't get him.
1: There's a a demon in your body. There's a demon (laughs) inside your body. Yeah. You know
0: what? You're you have some damn good impressions. I think this is a <laughs> this is a skill that you need to exploit
1: more. Uh, I'm always self conscious of it, but it's very kind of you to say that. To <laughs>
0: um, the first person that, that they thought was going to play uh, Reagan is Denise Nickerson, which is Violet Beauregard from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate oh, Factory. Interesting. And then her parents finally were like looking at the script, and they went. yeah we're not gonna we can't
1: can't (laughs) she's not sticking a crucifix there are you crazy
0: linda blair's mom with heard about this movie without an audition without an appointment stormed the casting offices with her daughter and said my daughter has to play this part and freaking meets her and he okay so here's one of the things about william Freakin. yeah i don't know if he's telling the truth (laughs) A lot of what he's saying is clearly not true. Right. Um, So here's his story. He goes up. He says he went up to Linda Blair and says, well, do you know what this movie is about? Linda Blair says she read the book. She didn't read the book. Um, And then he says, well, what's it about? She says, well, it's about a girl who who gets possessed by the devil and does bad things. He goes, what bad things? She says, again, this is Friedkin's story, Mm -hmm. that she pushes a man out of her window, hits her mom and masturbates with a crucifix. Now, Linda Blair's twelve. And he's <laughs> and Friedkin says that he asks her, What do you know what masturbation means? And he says that Linda Blair said, Well, isn't it just like jerking off? And Friedkin says, Well, yeah, have you ever done that? And wow. Linda Blair, again, according to Friedkin, says, Sure, haven't you? And that is why he cast her in the movie. <sighs> oh. The seventies were a fucked up time, man. But here's (laughs) what's so weird about: Linda Blair says uh, that at that time she had no idea what masturbation was. She had no clue about it whatsoever. And and so, like, Friedkin is telling this story about why he cast this girl. That's clearly not true, right? You know. And it's also a creepy story because the story you're telling is about you talking to a girl about whether or not she masturbates, who's (laughs) twelve. Who's twelve? Yeah. So. If it's true, it's fucked up. Right. And I don't think it's true. And if it's
1: not true, it's still fucked up. Because the fact that you felt you could tell it uh, and think it's legitimate. So, yeah. I mean, like, whoa.
0: So uh, shooting begins (laughs) in August of 72. Um, This is an unlucky shoot. There are many people who believe it is an unlucky shoot because it is dealing with issues then that God wasn't happy about it.
2: Um, uh,
0: So there are several people who died during the course of this shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Almost all of them have nothing to, you know, are like per- peripherally attached. So Max Fonsito's bro- brother died when they were shooting this movie. Oh. There was an assistant cameraman who had a baby who was stillborn at the time of the shooting of this movie. Oh, there is a, the guy who did the refrigeration for the set, the cold set, yeah. he died during the making of this movie.
1: Good God.
0: The set burnt down. In the midst of the shoot, Jesus Christ. Um, and they say we, they couldn't. They have no idea why, how the set burned down. They don't. They don't know what happened to do it. The shoot went um, was scheduled for 105 days. They sh- took 200 days to shoot the film wow. and doubled the budget. At one point, Friedkin had an exorcism on the set.
3: <laughs> of course. He did.
0: Now, again, of course some, some of this is true. Like, the set did burn down and these people did did die. But, but right. like, also some of it is, like, the legends of this film. Right. Would you like to enter the world? Would you like to possess this film right now? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's possess it. Uh, so we open on the house. And this is owned by one thing I should say is that, as you mentioned, there's a uh, uh, like a director's cut in 2000. There are a couple of different versions. So uh, this opening at the house that goes to the Virgin Mary in a church, that's actually not in the theatrical version. Oh, right. Um, this is in the director's cut. Um, and then we go to credits. And it's interesting. Yeah. It's one of these movies where it's not the director's movie. It's William Peter Blatting's The Exorcist, not oh, William right. Friedkin's The Exorcist, which right. is always interesting. Right. And then we hear the muslim call to prayer and we fade in on a sun over a hill and we're out at this these ruins and this was shot in mosul in iraq which is a name that we came to hear quite a bit during the iraq war sure um and this is a real um uh archaeological dig and this is pre-saddam but it is the baathist party is running iraq we had no uh, apparently no diplomatic relations with Iraq at all. That means no U.S. embassy. That means wow. no protections for the American crew. Wow. Um, so it's a, a little bit scary. It's as, as we've heard about, shooting in the desert is hard, 130 yeah. degrees during the day. Um, and we see these, this huge archaeological dig, and there's this kid who's running, and he runs off and finds this old man who is kneeling down, looking through something to dig, and we meet Max von Sydow. Yeah. It's our third movie with Max. Uh, as we said when we saw saw him in The Seventh Seal, he looks perpetually old, yeah. even though in The Seventh Seal, he's like 27. He he was born 70 years old.
1: He died looking 70 years old. So, yeah, I, it's no surprise to me at all. Well, and in this movie, he is actually 44. What? Boom. No, he isn't. He Shut is. up. Up, there is no way he's only forty-four years old. He looks
0: seventy-two in this movie. It's oh. actually it, it's actually really good makeup, and if you Clearly. look at the behind the scenes, he does look like a young guy. Well, and think about it. Um, uh, One of the other films we did with him is Three Days of the Condor, which is is basically exactly the same time. He didn't look like an old man then. He looks middle-aged. True, he does. You're right. You're right. He does great old man acting. Yes, he does. Uh, And he gets up and he heads over because they found something and there's this hole and they found, you know, this coin that seems significant or symbolic. And then he reaches his hand into a hole and already I'm scared. (laughs) It's just and it's creepy music. And yeah. he's reaching his hand into the hole, and I'm like, "Something's gonna, something's gonna cut his arm off. I don't know what's gonna happen, but it seems scary." And he pulls out some stuff, and he pulls out this thing that's this weird little head, and we have this creepy, evil music as we as we brush off and see this face that is kind of symbolic of something. Yeah.
1: And you hear the sound, you hear like the an adjustment in the score at that moment yeah. as well
0: that kind of lets you know this
1: is something evil.
0: Yeah. And then we go through this sequence where you, and, and and this is the thing, as much as I have problems with William Friedkin, I think there's some beautiful directing in this movie. Oh yeah. And we have this whole sequence where we have no idea what's going on. He's like in a, a tea house and he takes some pills, which are nitroglycerin pills, because his hands are shaking, he's got heart condition. Right. And then he kind of walks through this space and we see blacksmiths working and it's really, really loud. And then he steps out from where the blacksmiths are and it's suddenly really quiet. And this is the thing we're gonna see repeatedly through the film. Really loud space, cut to a really quiet space. Really quiet space, cut to a really loud space. Really bright, light, well lit space, cut to a dark space. Really fast things, cutting to really slow things. And it it, it totally keeps you off guard throughout the film. And it's definitely consciously done. And then again, we don't know what's going on. He walks through this workshop, he goes, hums out, and suddenly, again, very quiet, and then he's almost hit by this galloping carriage with this old woman. Friedkin says that she is 109 years old, that actress, the person playing that part. <laughs> of course she is. Who knows? And then he ends up at this place, at this dig, you know, another archaeological place, and he climbs up this hill, and the music is building. And we see a statue with the same sort of face as what was on the little thing that he had found. And there's this amazing wide 50 52 shot of him standing on top of this mountain, looking at the statue as the music builds. And it's super, super dissonant. It lo- it's an amazing moment. And it um, previews.
1: What we're going to see later in the movie. This is what I'm telling you, Steve. Watching this movie this time, I was not as scared as I had been in other times, and maybe maybe it's because I'm older, but also maybe because of us doing the show and the things I've been doing for the last five years. I was looking at the film as a film uh, lover, as a film analyst, as a film student, and watching the way Friedkin constructs this movie, and it's actually very well done, and that shot of Va- von Cito on the cliff essentially and it looks like they're right face to, of course that's a perspective shot but it kind of foreshadows the confrontation that's going to come way way later in the movie we don't see von Cito again after that for another hour and 10 20 minutes of the movie until yeah. the final yeah. 20 minutes of the movie it's incredible that he laid this groundwork to pay it off so much farther later on in the movie and it works
0: Well, and clearly one of the things that he's doing is saying there's some ancient evil. Yes. And this guy is battling this ancient evil. Yeah. And we know that that ancient evil is, we know what the movie, we know this movie is about a possession and an exorcism. And so we sort of understand, like, the connections between all these things. Yes. Um, And one of the things that's interesting, because the ruins that he's in are not Christian ruins, you know? Right. Right. Um, And one of the interesting things, like, almost every culture has some version of possession. You know, and so there are two. There, there, there are two different conclusions. I would say from this. One is, is that there are real demons in the world, and every culture has experienced them in one way or another. And yeah. another is, is that that was our way of explaining this thing that we didn't understand in human behavior. Yeah, you know, yeah. let people guess where I fall on this question. <laughs> We're we go to Georgetown. It's just this wide shot. And the camera just slowly zooming in. By the way, a lot of zoom lenses in this film. So it's not pushing in. We're not on a helicopter. It's a it's a zoom lens that's slowly zooming in, way, way in on this house. And then we are inside it. And there we see Ellen Burstyn, who's Chris McNeil. And she's working on a script because she's an actress. And she uh, gets out of bed and grabs her robe. And she's walking down a dark hall. Yeah. I call this dark hall syndrome. Okay. What this is is, if we were doing a comedy, a Fairly Brothers movie, okay. and someone walked down the same dark hall, you would not be scared. If we were doing a uh, episode of The West Wing and someone walked down a dark hall, you would not be scared, right? Because you know that you are watching a scary movie. Things which are nothing things like walking down a hall are instantly scary. Great point. Because yeah. you bring that with you. And, of course, we put a little creepy music to it. And then suddenly we're in a scary scene. Right. And she goes uh, into her daughter Reagan's bedroom. And it's cold. And the window's open. She closes the window. And then it's the next day. And we meet. Oh, and and, and one other thing that happens is she hears something up in the attic. Something moving around. Some sound. Yeah. And it's the next morning. She's talking to her cooks and to her servant, who's a guy named Carl. And she says, got to be rats upstairs and he goes there's no rats and she says well get some rat traps he goes there's no rats and she says get some rat traps and that's that <laughs> um, but,
1: we're, but we're introduced to the fact that Carl is German that he's that's, German this is it. we hear that accent we hear his defiance of her a little bit <laughs> when she when he's like there's no rats there's no rats and she's like get the traps and so we see that this is a, an interesting mix of people in the, a very
0: strong-willed people in this house. Yes, and by the way, he's he, if you read the book, he's actually yeah. Swiss, not German. Oh, and his part is much bigger. There's much more Carl stuff in the book okay. than there is in the movie, which is yeah. totally co- like that is a correct cut. The fact yeah. that they pulled down some a bunch of the Carl stuff, and now we see we're on a big movie set, and we meet Burke Jennings, who is the director. He's played by Jack McGowan, <laughs> and he is a uh, Irish actor, and he did. Lots of the premieres of Beckett plays. He's one of Beckett's favorite actors. Um, and Thomas there's Thomas Beckett. Thomas Beckett. <laughs> Sam, Beckett.
1: It, Sam Beckett. Sam Beckett. Oh, I'm Beckett. sorry.
0: Yeah. Endgame, Waiting for Godot, those plays. Interesting. Okay. Um, And she's arguing with the director about the part, none of which is terribly important. But what the movie is, is some kind of student protest that she's a teacher and there's a huge protest and she goes up to yell at the students that you have to change things within the system. And as we see, there's the crowd, there's the crowd of actors and extras. And then behind that, behind a barrier is a whole bunch of spectators in the Georgetown community here just watching the shoot. And in there is Father Karras, James, you know, who we talked about, James yeah. Miller, and he watches it and walks away. Hmm. It's, it's always interesting. We come across this many times where a director says a thing about uh, something that they did in a movie and you go, I don't get that at all. Right. <laughs> Here's what he said. He says it's totally important that uh, Chris character in the film makes a speech about to the student protesters about working within the system to solve problems Mm -hmm. because father Karras is a person is a priest who's losing his faith, who has to work in the system of Catholicism Mm -hmm. to save the daughter who is possessed. Wow. Now I would never in a million years have made that connection. Yeah. But Friedkin says this is very important. Well, here's what I would
1: say. As I was watching it this time, because we were mentioning that earlier, um, this film is not about the little girl. Oh, no. As I'm as I'm watching this film for the first time ever, it struck me how this is about Balikaris. This is about his journey, his guilt, his losing faith, his challenge to his faith. This entire film really is about his journey and sh- her being possessed is the ultimate test of his faith ultimate uh uh, the battleground for his own internal civil war about his faith uh and i just was really shocked as i was watching the film how that became the focus uh for me in my mind you know because that little girl can't control the demonic thing Karis is able to control his feelings able to understand what's happening he's a psychiatrist as a priest and so he's he understands what's happening but even he is powerless at times to fight back against this overwhelming sense of guilt. And it's something that gets used throughout the movie.
0: I think that's a hundred percent right. I feel the same way. Mm. I think, I think of the three main characters of Chris, the mom, Karis, the priest and Reagan, the daughter. Reagan is the least important,
1: you know? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: She's just a, she is the object of all of their struggles. Right. You know, we don't really get to know her or spend time with her. And as you say, she doesn't have any choices in anything that she does. Right, right. You know, and, and, and what I think you bring up that's so important is I think thematically what makes this film so interesting is it is a battle between science and secularism and the modern world mm. versus faith and belief and Catholicism and those things which we can't understand. And what, yeah. ma- what makes it so interesting is that he is a priest psychiatrist. Yes, so he is—he has feet in both places, yeah. you know. And right now, the shaky part of him is the faith part, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a—that's a totally right. Um, and uh, our Chris, the actress, has decided to walk home, and she sees for a moment uh, Father Karis talking to some guy, um, and for some reason, she takes interest in it. And for the first time, we hear tubular bells. Yeah. Which is the Exorcist music? Which is uh, Mike Oldfield. What's so funny is I forgot how little that music is actually in this movie.
1: Yeah, it's only like three three cues, maybe. Yes, yeah, uh, two or three cues. Yeah,
0: it's not there a lot, but it's amazing music and will forever be associated with this True. film. True. Um, she gets home. We meet Sharon, who's like her assistant person, and we hear some stuff about that she's been invited for dinner at the White House. So this is obviously yeah. an important actress. And she goes to say hi to Reagan, who she calls rags, and they have a cute scene about her wanting a horse, and then they goof around, and then she steals some cookies, which is, we can't really see, but that's what happens. And. Uh, and mom ends up wrestling with her daughter on the floor, and it's really, really cute. Yeah. By the way, uh, what again, what Friedkin says is that the wrestling on the floor is important foreshadowing for them wrestling later on in the film.
1: I was just going to say that. That's definitely laying the groundwork for what you'll see, the playful wrestling versus what we see later, the more violent wrestling when she's possessed, and then at the end, when they're both in the corner crying, holding each other, the wrestling match is over. Now they embrace each other in a Mm -hmm. different way, you know? And so that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's laying, that's the thing about this movie, watching it this time, Steve, he's laying the groundwork for everything. And if you're watching it to really, to get away from the fear stuff, you can really enjoy this movie uh, for what Friedkin does because the the possessed scenes aren't that much of the movie. And so it's more about what's happening here
0: amongst the people who are not possessed to deal with what is happening. Yeah. Well, what's so funny, and we talked about it when we talked about Jaws, we talked about when we talked about Alien, mm-hmm. it is the anticipation of bad things happening that is scary. Yes. The more you see the thing, like the shark in Jaws or the alien in yeah. Alien, the, it becomes less scary. And so right. it's it's the anticipate, And it's funny because, so I listened to the book, the first two thirds of the book, which is mostly all the medical stuff and seeking for an answer and stuff like that, right. was really upsetting to me. Like, really, really upsetting to me. Okay, And maybe it's because I'm a dad now, but maybe it's just like, you know, you really feel the pain of these characters trying, dealing with things they don't understand. Once it got to The Exorcism, I didn't find the book scary at all. (laughs) And I had a similar response to the movie, you know, because then I was like, you know, and it's sort of what you said. It's like, well, then I was, as a As a podcast guy, I was analyzing the film. And I'm starting and stopping a lot to take my notes. And I was like, oh, this is what is now. Her head is spinning around. Okay. You know, it didn't scare me. It just was what was happening. Exactly. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of
1: walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great
0: work-life balance and it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of of us deal with our stressors in our lives.
1: And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working
0: out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Uh, we're in a subway in New York, and Karis walks by a homeless guy who says, Father, you
2: help all the boys?
0: It's a weird kind of moment. Yeah,
1: and I, I know. I know. We, I, I just want to say a couple things real quick. I think Freakin is working out his own feelings about a number of things throughout this movie he turns the director into a buffoon and later Mm -hmm. on a drunken buffoon a racist drunken buffoon of course he makes him british so it doesn't necessarily connect back to him uh he's taking shots at the catholic church he uh, how they say oh whatsoever you do to the least of my brothers as you do unto me here's a moment where he could help this homeless guy and he turns away from him so it's this idea like he's taking these like mini little subtle pot shots at these uh, uh, things that exist in our world, uh, to show the
0: hypocrisy of them,
1: you know, I don't know.
0: No, I, 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 think. Well, and I think it's so interesting this movie happening. This is such a it is a seventies film. We should say that this, this yes. is a movie that only exists in the seventies. Yes, Great and it's point. that combo of questioning all of society rules that has happened through the sixties, the fall of the studio system, the, you know, all the violence and stuff we saw in New York city and French connection and like this, like pushing the boundaries of, we don't need to respect the old things that we yeah. had to respect. How far can we push things? And this is a movie that certainly pushes things real far. <laughs> um, True. Father Karras emerges climbing up the stairs out of the subway. Uh, Friedkin says that he always wanted to show Father Karras rising up into scenes. Damn. That this is about him ascending. That this is about... His struggle, you know, those struggles, which I think really, really works. Okay. Goes to a super bad neighborhood in New York with kids playing on wrecked cars and stuff like that and goes to see his mom. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it, but his mom is ill, she's a Greek immigrant, he's trying to help her. She refuses help, she's got a bad leg, and she there's obvious a lot of feelings of guilt here. And then later he leaves and leaves some money on her counter and leaves her asleep in a chair and turns the radio station to a Greek. Radio station for Greek music, and he walks out. We're back with Reagan and her mom, and she has made some weird art project, which is this weird bird, chicken, colorful clay <laughs> thing, which is going to come up a little bit later, but doesn't really become clear in the movie. I can tell you what it is in the book, but in the movie it's not really clear exactly what all this is. And we find that there's a Ouija board. And she asked Reagan, if you have played with Ouija board, you know how it works. And she says, yeah, I play with Captain Howdy.
4: Captain who? Captain Howdy. Who's Captain Howdy? You know, I make the questions and he does the answers.
0: And then the little puck, or I don't even know what you call it, that thing with the window, yeah, jumps. It moves. Yeah. And that is our first mystical sort of element.
4: Captain Howdy, do you think my mom's pretty? Captain Howdy. Captain Howdy, that isn't very nice. Well, maybe
0: sleeping. Captain Howdy, what was the name of... The little voice that lives in my head? (laughs) I'm trying to remember. That's what you meant, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. totally. No, in The Shining, what is the name of his... That's what I mean. He calls it the little voice that lives in my head. I thought it was like Terry or something like that. No, it is. Okay. I'm looking it up right now.
4: Is Tony one of your animals? No, he's a little bit as in my mouth Tony's his imaginary
1: friend So interesting to see that You know, this kind of thing of like Well, uh, what is this all about? You know, so
0: Yeah, it's totally reminiscent Captain Howdy's totally reminiscent of the same thing Right, yeah Um, Which is interesting because I don't think The Shining was written after this Mm. That's post-exorcist. Okay? Okay. It's bedtime and we're talking about the fact that Reagan's birthday is coming up and what are they going to do? And she says, you can bring Mr. Denning if you like. That's Burke Denning, who's the director.
4: Well, thank you very much. But why on earth would I want to bring Burke on your birthday? You like him? Yeah, I like him. Don't you like
0: him? Hey, what's going on? What is this?
4: Huh? You're going to marry him, aren't you? Oh, my <laughs> God. God, you can you me, Mary Burke Dennings?
0: Because in Reagan's head, she's sort of just assumed that this guy that her mom's spending a lot of time with, they must get married. Right. And and Chris says, Of
4: course I like them. I like pizzas, too, but I'm not going
1: to
0: marry one. <laughs> yeah, um, totally the same thing. Totally the same thing. One of the things that's sort of in the movie and sort of isn't, and is sort of in the book but sort of isn't, is a, an attempt to create psychological reasons behind what Reagan does to later be disproved. Oh, okay. And so, and one this is one of them that I don't think is that successful. Which is that a non-mystical motivation is that Re- so. Spoiler alert: uh, yeah. Burke's going to die, and the assumption is that Reagan possessed Reagan killed him. Right. The psychological explanation is that she is jealous of her mother's new boyfriend, and oh, that is why she kills him. Right, right. The same thing is true, which we'll get to. In the swearing, was that the reason that Reagan starts swearing is that she overheard her mom swearing. Those are psychological explanations for what are actually going to be mystical things. But I don't think that really works in the film. Um, We're at a loud bar and Karis is with uh, a priest. This is his best friend, his father Dyer. And this is played by an actual Jesuit priest. This is Father Hmm. O'Malley. Um, And basically he's going, you got to get me out of this job. You know, I can't be the psychiatrist of people. And he's going, well, you know, they need you. And he says, I want out, I'm unfit. And finally, at the end of the scene, he admits. I think I've lost my faith, Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: (sighs) I mean, the idea of a priest losing faith, especially a, a younger priest, do you know what I'm saying, and struggling with it? It's just that moment is just powerful to hear because... They are supposed to be, you know, in the, in the Catholic church, Christian church, what have you, whatever church you're in, they're supposed to be your access to God, your your connection to God. Uh, and they're supposed to take on all this stuff and navigate you to a better place. But we sometimes forget that these are human beings and they have to negotiate their own concerns about this and i'd be curious to see what the statistics are we talk about police who have high suicide rates do priests have suicide rates do priests have high turnover rates i'd love to explore that sometime because I'm, it's a lot to take on uh, well that's other people's problems
0: that's what issues. i was thinking too and in the statistic which of course we could never know is right right how many priests have lost their faith yeah great and points. how many got gained it back yeah you know right like uh, i mean it's such a you know at the point where people make the decision to become a priest like you know you and i when we were 18 20 i'm sure that both of us were way more passionate and uh filled with strong beliefs you know unshakable beliefs than we are yeah. today you yeah. know sure like, I was so sure about, I mean, I wasn't oh, yeah. religious, I never had faith, but I was so sure about all this stuff that <laughs> as the, after life kicked the shit out of me, and I saw how the world looked a bit, I was like, oh, no, you, you can't be so certain of that stuff.
1: <laughs> oh, maybe not, maybe not.
0: <laughs> you know, so right. you, you, you're so certain about your belief in God, and that's what you've been raised in, and you 100% believe it. And then, yeah. as you say, you deal with all this pain and all this suffering, and you watch, I'm sure, the machinations of the Catholic Church, which are mm. political and yeah. Start to go, wait, what's this about? You know, it seems pretty reasonable to me. Uh, Chris is screaming at the phone in the night at a long distance operator because dad has forgotten Reagan's birthday.
4: Jesus Christ, can you believe this? He doesn't even call his daughter on her birthday for Christ's sake? Maybe the circuit is busy. Oh, circuit's my ass. He doesn't give a shit.
0: Again, this is what I was saying. She's swearing a lot and the camera pulls back and we see that Reagan is overhearing it. Yep. It's the middle of the night, the phone rings because Chris has to get up to go shoot something. And and she, as she's getting up, she turns and sees Reagan in the bed with her. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing here?
4: My bed was shaking. I can't get to sleep.
0: Chris gets up. Again, she walks out in the hall and hears something in the attic. And it's loud, dude. Yeah, it's loud. Big rats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and it, it's and, and again we're in a scary movie. So right. the moment that she looks up, you're like, "Don't go in the attic!" Right? <laughs> what are you doing? Don't go in the attic! <laughs> and she pulls down the ladder and she climbs up, and it's just going up into a dark hole. And the lights in the attic won't work, of course. Yeah. So she grabs a candle. And you're like, "Don't go in the attic!" <laughs> and she goes up and she looks around, and first scare, she stubs her toe. quiet there's no music she's coming towards the camera so and again this is another key of scary movies limit the view right. if you don't let the audience see everything our ability to see everything makes us feel safe right don't let them see it so that's why scary movies happen in the dark and that's why we're just looking at her face and she's walking towards us and then all of a sudden simultaneously. We hear a voice and her candle flame goes, (sighs) yeah, crazy effect blows up. Yeah. Yeah. And there's Carl standing behind her. And what's so funny is she's upset with Carl for startling her, but Mm -hmm. she doesn't go, what the fuck just happened with my candle? (laughs) Oh, and one thing that we see, of course, while we're in the attic is there are a bunch of rat traps. None of them have been sprung. There are no rats. There are no rats. Like I said, there are no rats. Uh, We cut to a priest with some flowers going into the church to set things up. And he's walking in there and he, you know, he kneels down and he crosses himself and he puts a bouquet of flowers below one statue. And then he turns to go to the other statue. And that statue we see in a really quick shot has these weird breasts and phalluses with brightly colored clay. and, And it has been desecrated.
1: As a, as a uh, um, Catholic, or as a, you know, someone who grew up Catholic, I still can't handle seeing that, you know, that kind of stuff. Even though I don't lo- I no longer go to church, no longer, I still believe in God and everything, of course, but like that moment is just, it's still unsettling to see desecration of that kind of stuff. Uh, and it really is those little, they're not scary moments. They're more meant to unsettle you. If you have any kind of faith, it's meant to unsettle you because th- it's, um, the images the the horns are so big and thick coming out like that. It's, it's meant to
0: offend in, in a very strong way. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about, it, I wanted to look up uh, cause of course the words consecrate and desecrate are, 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 mm. are, are connected to consecrate means to make something divine. Right. So that you, you know, you take the water, the water becomes holy water. Mm. The, the wafer becomes body. the, the, cross becomes blessed right and what i was thinking about is like well as soon as you consecrate you give power to that thing Mm -hmm. and then if someone desecrates they are abusing something you've put power into you put your faith into that statue (laughs) yeah yeah. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so there's this weird sense of like well now that cross well that is my faith right i've placed it there so by someone destroying it they have attacked me my right. faith, a very right. personal thing. Yeah. By the way, the, so the plot that isn't handled very well in the film is that the clay that is used to desecrate that statue is the same clay that Reagan does her art projects with. Oh, interesting. So that's why Detective mm. Kinderman later on finds some little piece of clay in the weeds right. near the steps where Burke uh, Burke died. And so that's why he, So, so in the book, Kinderman actually does suspect and believe that Reagan is possessed and killed Burke. Interesting, and he okay. because because much more so in the book, it's a right. detective story. Right, Kinderman's a much bigger t- character who's trying to find the murderer of Burke Dennings, mm-hmm. and then we cut to a, a doctor and they're drawing blood from Reagan, and it's almost like we skipped ahead a bit because it seems like there's been things happening with Reagan that have led. Chris to bring her daughter to the doctor, mm-hmm. but we haven't seen anything, right. you know. Right, and they're doing an exam, and they have the little um, tuning fork and putting it next to her, and they ask if she feels the vibration. No response. She seems very out of it. And then they ask again, and she says in this hard voice,
2: "I don't feel anything."
0: Yeah, and it is very different from the Reagan we've seen before. And then she even starts wrestling with not wanting a thermometer. Right. And then there's a scene where she's walking around and she just sort of collapses on the floor. Yeah. It's all weird. Then the doctor comes out to talk to Chris and at least a big hunk of this scene was not in the theatrical cut, which I can't believe because I actually Mm -hmm. think it's a really good scene. He basically says it's nerves and he prescribes Ritalin.
4: Is about a tranquilizer? It's a stimulant. A stimulant? My God, she's higher a the kite now.
3: The condition isn't quite what it seems. Nobody knows the cause of hyperkinetic behavior in a child. The Ritalin seems to work to relieve the condition. But uh, her symptoms could be overreaction to depression. That's out of my field.
4: My daughter isn't depressed.
0: Which is of course what we've seen. She didn't seem like someone who's depressed.
4: Do you think I should take her to a psychiatrist?
0: Oh, I think we should wait and see what happens
3: with the Ritalin. I think that's the answer.
0: (laughs) What's so weird about this movie, there's like such an anti-psychiatry thing. Oh, yeah. Like I said, he's taking shots all over the place in this film. Yeah. Wait, is Friedkin a Scientologist? Or Blatty? Jesus, I don't know. Because they, I don't, so I don't know this at all. It's a great question, though, man. Because there's a strong anti-psychiatry thing in Scientology. Yes, there Very is. Very anti-psychiatry. Yeah. Because it's really weird. The, all the doctors over and over again, anytime psychiatry comes up, they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not talk crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's too oh, crazy. that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's really weird how it comes oh. up. And then he asks about, you know, your daughter's swearing. And she's like, she doesn't swear.
3: Well, she let loose quite a string while I was examining her misadagnia.
0: And mom asked, what did she say? And you can see the doctor doesn't want to <laughs> say it. <laughs> Repeat it. Yeah.
3: Her vocabulary is rather extensive.
4: Well, give me an example. What did like like what specifically? What did she say?
0: And again, I'm going to use these words or play them.
3: Well, specifically, Mrs. McNeil. She advised me to keep my fingers away
0: from her. Goddamn cunt. And right. Chris laughs. Um, yeah. And and again, she asks, "Don't you think we should see a psychiatrist?" And he goes, "No, no, no." Best explanation is always the simplest. Do the drugs. Um, (laughs) Yeah, always better. Just do the drugs. By the way, if a doctor who is examining a young girl goes to the mom and tells the mom that the young girl said, keep your goddamn fingers away from my blank. Yeah. That mom would be very concerned and not have that kid around that doctor. Probably not. Totally different reaction today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And rightfully so. Yeah. Uh, we're at Bellevue because uh, Karis's mom has been admitted we meet uh, the uncle and man this scene this is the old this is the old school uh, crazy person asylum scene the no,
2: let me, no. the it's all right.
0: there's the people staring off into space and muttering to themselves and he Karis walks through the space and they all come to touch him and it's yeah. really creepy and unsettling this is an awakenings this is something else no. completely. This is like this is like Cuckoo's Nest and yeah, Cuckoo's Nests, yeah. great. Um, or 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 the um, the asylum at the the place at the end of Amadeus or the beginning of Amadeus.
1: Oh yeah, great point. Yeah, yeah.
0: That. Um And he finds his mom, and his mom blames him for putting her there, oh, and God. he's like, and it's a really rough scene. It is, man. I don't ever want to live a scene like that, man. You see that because you hear
1: people talk about those experiences and how damaged they are afterwards from that, and it's a a great way for Karis to become sympathetic to us as he goes into this situation uh, later on in the film.
0: Well, and we learn one of the pieces of his guilt is that his uncle says,
1: You know, it's funny. If he wasn't
4: a priest, would be famous psychiatrist now, Park Avenue. Your mother, she be living in a penthouse instead of the...
1: And even she says to her him, why did you move me out of New York? I could have, you know, but, yeah. or he says like, uh, or yeah, they, they'd have been better off if they'd stayed in New York,
0: which is... Yeah. Horrific to you? Um, well, no, they are in New York. They're still in New York.
1: Oh, oh, so yeah. But yeah.
0: W- didn't they move her out? Okay, all right. Well, no, well, she. Well. it's I actually think it's a little bit. Con- I think you're right to be confused because yeah, he when he visits her in her apartment, it says let's get you out of here. Let's get you into like a home somewhere they can right. care of you. And then in this scene, he's saying let's get you out of here. I'll get you back home. And she's resisting. And yeah. so, so I think it's confusing about what's going on. Okay, fair enough. And then we have, again, a hard cut from this scene to Karis just punching the shit out of a, a heavy bag. And in fact, one of the things about his character is that he was a boxer before he was a priest. Um, Interesting. Okay. We're at a fancy party that Chris McNeil is throwing and there's an astronaut talking to Father Dyer. That's our real Jesuit priest. Father O'Malley, and it just looks like a great 70s fancy cocktail party, um, except that our drunken director is now insulting Carl and calling him a Nazi.
3: Tell me, was it public relations you did for the Gestapo? Walk, community relations.
4: Yes, of course. And you never went bowling with Goebbels either, I suppose, eh? Nazi bastard.
0: Yeah, poor Carl. Poor Carl, indeed. And again, in the book, he's Swiss. And in the book, yeah. he never reacts at all. Wow. In fact, he's this really weird, enigmatic character who, no matter what is happening in the world, shows absolutely no emotion. And then we see, you see him privately break down. Mm-hmm. And he has a whole subplot that he has a drug addict daughter who's living with someone that he's giving money. There's a whole subplot with Carl. Wow. And he's okay. keeping all that stuff in. And for whatever reason, and it's really just to advance the plot, I think, is that Chris asks Father Dyer about this strange priest that she's seen, which is Karis. And it's like, you're in a city on Georgetown, which is a Jesuit university. There are a lot of priests. And for whatever reason, (laughs) she spotted this one guy and she says, what's up with that guy? And he says, oh, yeah, he just had a big blow. His mom just died. Right. Which Okay, like <laughs> it's a strange little scene, and then we're in the kitchen, and <laughs> Burke, the director, is just laying Ugh. into Carl. Horrific, man. Yeah. Canting hand,
4: bloody damn butchering Nazi pig.
0: Carl finally breaks and goes, "I'll kill you!" and put and starts to strangle him.
2: I kill you. <laughs>
0: Rightfully so, in my opinion. Yeah. In the book, nothing, totally oh, stonewalled, really? no reaction to Burke at all. Wow. Okay. Why do you think, cause I, cause I've read the book, so mm-hmm. I know stuff that you don't, but right. why do you think that's in the movie? This whole Burke-Karl Nazi thing. Uh,
1: maybe uh, uh, Polanski. Maybe he's taking shots at Polanski. I don't know. Uh, I mean, that's a possibility too, right? Because Polanski, wasn't he a guy who escaped or his parents escaped the Nazis? And no,
0: didn't escape. His parents, didn't he, escape. Was in the, he was in the Holocaust. So, okay, his parents so, died in the Holocaust. So he there we in go. A concentration camp.
1: Yeah, so maybe he's like, I don't know. Maybe he's taking a shot at Polanski or maybe he's like uh, saying something to Polanski or maybe that guy's standing in. For polanski because remember later he's like a drunken he's dry they have to drag him out because he's a drunken boar there um i don't know i don't know but also it it i mean the undercurrent here is the just the mentioning of the word nazi which has always been even though there are other uh movements other political parties other countries other times in history where way more people were killed uh, uh because of something that a leader did or whatever there's just something about Adolf Hitler and the Nazis that are always will rank them number 1 when you call when you talk about evil on on the planet and of course because of the holocaust and so many other things that they did uh to people who are gay to to uh to women to uh uh to the experiments that the rumored experiments that they did on these like it's pure horror and so just hearing the word nazi maybe is another way of throwing in subconsciously that de- the constant fear that there's or constant feeling that there's something terrible terrible happening or something of terror is coming uh, as well because some of the sound cues in the film all the way up to this point are loud for a reason you oh, know yeah. uh, stubbing the toe the flame going up the phone ringing loudly the sounds her wails his mom's wails are loud so all those things are there to keep you unbalanced the whole time and so Seeing this guy who just go after someone like Carl uh, is, you know, just uh, you know, an uncomfortable moment.
0: So you are very good at this job and what you just did was so much better than what is actually going on.
2: <laughs> I okay, think that analysis is <laughs>
0: great. Here's what is going on because it's what's in the book. Right, Is that in the book, the mystery is much bigger. Who killed oh. Bert Dennings? Carl is the number one suspect because burke oh. has been insulting him over and over again and calling him a nazi and right. only a very strong man which carl is a big strong man would be capable of twisting the guy's head completely around and so kinderman is after carl and it's a whole so so that's oh, that's wow. why it's in the book and then you have this remnant of it in the movie and then what happens is is carl lies about where he was when burke died because huh. he said he was at a movie which he wasn't and then we find out and then Kinderman does detective stuff and discovers that in fact he was giving money to his drug addict daughter. And, and part of what makes it work in the book is because Carl never reacts to anything. He's totally stoic. It makes him more suspicious as a possible murder suspect, Damn! but none of that's in the film. So it's sort of like, okay, what, when you take away the meaning, the resonance of of this thing and just leave the Nazi and then add, I want to kill you. Well, like, I don't know what that's doing to the film. Other than that Burke is a complete jerk. Right. Um, So we get rid of Burke. He's drunkenly sent away, and then we're a bunch of people singing around the piano at the end of the party. <laughs> camera pushes in, and then the camera pulls back, and then the people all sort of look up.
2: Hey, I, I think
3: we've
0: got a guest, and there is Reagan. And Reagan turns to the astronaut and says,
4: "You're gonna die up there,"
0: <sighs> which is horrible to begin with, and then pees. Yeah.
1: And even the peeing is uncomfortable, isn't it? Because the sound of it hitting the carpet, you know? Well,
0: and and this is the first sign of this movie is going to violate norms. Yeah. Everything we're going to see are things that make you, are designed to make you really uncomfortable.
4: Mother, what's wrong with me? It's just like the doctor said, it's nerves. And that's all. Okay. You just take your pills and you'll be fine, really.
0: And then she goes outside and it's very obvious that she doesn't believe that at all. <laughs> and the lights flicker and this is another key sign that things are mystical and she opens the door and Reagan is on the bed and it's the bed is shaking like crazy. <laughs>
1: This is so well-timed, Steve, because everything's been leading to this moment. Everything's been leading. The little hints, the little sound cues, the little feelings of evil, everything's been leading to this moment where we finally go, you've been waiting for it, here we go. And the bed is so, like, it's not even a hint of it. It is full-on happening, you know?
0: Um. And, and by the way, there are a whole bunch of different beds that <laughs> do different jobs <laughs> in this movie. This is the shaky bed. And I think there's just two guys, and they have – on the other side of the wall, the bed has like beams, like wooden planks sticking out and they're bouncing yeah. on those. And the bed is on a slight fulcrum so that it's there's a, on the side that we're looking at. It looks like shaking. I mean, it is. Shaking. Right, right. Um, and yeah. again, we go from loud to quiet, you know, yeah. we're quiet in the hall. Then it's loud in the bedroom. Father Dyer visits Karis and they're obviously good friends and they drink some shivas together and Father Dyer gently puts him to bed, takes his shoes off. Um, because Karras is mourning for his mom right. and feeling deeply guilty. Yeah. And then we have a dream sequence and it's Karras' dream. Oh. There's We see that coin falling that was the one that Max von Cito saw, yeah. saw. We see the dogs that were fighting, which I don't think I mentioned, but that happened in Iraq. Right. We see the clock from Iraq and then we see mom coming up out of the subway the same way that Karras did. Yeah. And he's in the center on the Island of a busy street in New York yelling, but his voice can't hear his voice. And he's running to call to his mom. And she turns around and goes back down the subway. He can't reach her. And then we see the coin fall. And then we hear a scream.
1: Right. And it's perfect for what you said earlier, Steve, this idea that he wanted to constantly show the priest ascending, this is his mom, the priest's mom descending. Right. And also the idea of going down, it puts in your mind subconsciously going down to hell. Going down into some place dark, you know, and it's like, oh, dude, how much more can you put this kid through, man? It's just tough, tough yeah. to watch, man. And by the way, he has
0: a great face.
1: Oh my god, he does. Oh my god, he does, man.
0: he has got such emotion and sadness and world weariness and yeah. compassion too. A really it's a great seventies face. face, man. Totally. And the scream is a hard cut into uh, a doctor's exam. And she's given Reagan a shot. Doctor's given Reagan a shot. She spits in the doctor's face, calls him a fucking bastard. <laughs> Another hard cut. Again, uh, these continual changes in tone. And now we're at a, uh, a Catholic service and Karis is saying prayers. He says a prayer for his mom. And we have the, you know, the body of Christ. Yeah. Um, and then we come back to the hospital and the doctor comes out lights a cigarette and tells Chris, of a type of disturbance
3: in the chemical electrical activity of the brain. It's rare, but it does cause bizarre hallucinations. And usually just before a convulsion, a
4: convulsion,
3: the shaking in the bed.
0: Yeah. I mean, like explain that to me, please. That's doubtless due to muscular spasms. Now we saw it. <laughs> we know that's not what it uh, was.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, muscular spasms. Yeah. It's a
1: problem. It's easy. Oh
4: no no no! That was no spasm. Look, I got on the bed. The whole bed was thumping and rising off the floor and shaking. The whole thing with me on it. Mrs.
0: McNeil,
3: the problem with your daughter is not her bed, it's her
0: brain. And she goes, uh. how can, you know how can this temporal lobe thing you know change her whole personality? And he says, oh, it's common. It isn't rare to find destructive, even criminal behavior. And the doctor's going, no, no, this is a good thing because if it's a lesion on the brain, then we just have to remove the scar and everything will be good. Right, right. Again, science offers clear answers and clear solutions. Always. Always. And, what's, and, and of course, when science fails to do that, yeah. that's when, you know, and, and that's the thing is science is going to totally fail in this movie. Oh, yeah. And now we go into the scene that this is the most disturbing scene in the movie. Mm for people. So this is a film where the legends are, and some of them are true. People were throwing up in the movie theater. People were fainting in the movie theater. People ran out of the movie theater and it happened so often that that became like an advertisement. And so there were movie theaters that would hand out barf bags, you know, and they would, or there were movie theaters where you'd go to see the exorcist and there'd be two ambulances parked in front just in case. And it was all just sort of like, Are you, can you handle this film? (laughs) Right. But it's interesting to me that this is the scene that people had the most reactions to, because this is non-mystical. What's terrifying in the scene is science. Yes. Um, This was filmed at uh, NYU at their hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, All the people working in the scene are real medical professionals. This is really how they do it. Um, They didn't actually stick a needle in her neck. Right. Um, the guy, a uh, guy named Paul Bateson is the radiographer. He was later convicted of murdering a journalist. Jesus. Two years after this movie. <laughs> um, yeah. wow. It's all handheld, it's really documentary style. It's very upsetting. Regan, I'm just gonna move you down on the table, okay? They, they put paint her neck with like, I'm sure it's a iodine or something like that. And then they bring this big hypo and they say, you're gonna feel a little stick.
3: Okay, now you're gonna feel a little stick here.
0: And it's so much worse than what you think it's going to be because blood shoots out and more blood shoots out and the discomfort on Reagan's face. And it's, it's tough to watch.
1: Well, once again, like the whole movie, there's no place for them to turn that is not without its horror, you know, and maybe this is more freaking statement on society in the seventies, every place you turn uh, for refuse or help or respite carries its own horror you know the church questioning its faith the church representative questioning its faith scientists stepping forward with these brutal techniques Um, and then later of course the exorcism and what happens there so it's like everywhere she goes even the mom and we haven't even talked about this like She's an actress. She yeah. feels like maybe she hasn't been around enough, and she's having her own issues with how her dad is, uh, how the dad of of Reagan is essentially abandoning her. Um, you know, all of that is mixed in too. Like she, this is not. This is probably not a a, a, a young girl who has seen who sees her parents necessarily a lot you know and so there's all of that rolling through even even the relationship of a parent isn't as strong uh as as you'd like it to be but to, Reg- to uh, reagan's mom's credit to ellen burson's credits character's credit she fights to find the answer yeah. she pushes to find the answer she borders on being a little bit too strong but she's desperate to find an answer because she loves her child
0: yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in this kind of realm, it's like, what, what, what's too strong, you know? Right. Exactly. When you do um, with the
1: devil. Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: anyway. I, I think the choice of making her an actress and not just an actress, apparently a really famous actress I yes. mean, here, she's being invited to a dinner at the White House. Right. I think it's really important because what it does, I think, is here's a person who has all the resources. Yeah, right. They're literally, they're, there's no limitations on what she can do. She can get the best doctors. She can spend all the money. She's right. intelligent. She's famous. She, she is the ideal. This person should have no problems in the way we look at them. And she, all of that is totally useless in this situation.
1: Once again, another institution, the idea of, uh, if I make a lot of money, I, sh- I won't have any problems. No, it doesn't matter where you turn or what you have. There are problems.
0: At the end of this medical procedure, we hear the loud banging, clanging of the machines and Reagan's screams. And then we go to quiet again. And this doctor is looking at the the, the x-rays of the images that are lit up. And we see the reflections in his glasses. It's really cool. And what do we find? We find nothing. Yeah. Nothing there. Mm -hmm. And then they get a call uh, from Chris saying, you know. She's on the phone, Doctor, uh, and says it's urgent. The two doctors now arrive at the house. Sharon leads them upstairs. Mm-hmm. This shot doesn't look that impressive today because today we would just do this shot with a Steadicam. You can't go right. up st- downstairs with a dolly. Your handheld would be too shaky, so today you just use a Steadicam so you can go all the way up multiple flights of stairs with your actors. Mm-hmm. Steadicam hadn't been invented yet. So what this is, is the cameraman is in a sling on a rope, on a pulley. And he is being oh. lifted up through the center of the staircase as the actors and ter- and pivoting and moving as the actors are. So it's like he's a puppet, a big oh. puppet on a string being oh. flown around to do this shot.
1: Well, he's being lifted like through. Yeah. So he's almost like an angel being lifted amongst exactly. these things. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. man! I love so it. and
0: they're running upstairs. And you could so, I think that the doctor's performances are so great because oh, yeah, you can see they think they're going to go into a normal room, yes. Like it's not that they don't think it's going to be bad because they're doctors and they, you know, they've seen bad stuff, yeah, but they don't understand what they're about to walk into. They walk into the room, Reagan is screaming, her body is bending forward and backward in this crazy way, saying, It hurts, it hurts, it burns, help me, help me, help me.
4: Do something desperately
0: happened. Okay. Here's how they did this. <laughs> okay. That is Linda Blair. She is attached to. She's like strapped in. She's like wearing a harness, and she's attached to a rope. And there's and there's stuntmen pulling her back and forth. And her legs are strapped down to the bed, which causes that weird bend. And they're yanking her back and forth and pulling her. They really, really hurt her. Her back was oh, wow. severely injured from this and when she is screaming it hurts it hurts help me that was her saying it hurts it hurts like and they thought she was acting so they just kept doing it oh jesus christ yeah. um <sighs> yeah um and the doctors are stunned and then she's bouncing up and down on the bed there's a lot of flying effects um, her eyes roll back in the head and the doctor goes up thinks he can help and he gets clocked
2: all right well, let's ah! see what to the- ah! oh
0: do um, yeah, full on clock. And then we hear the first demon voice, and it says,
1: Keep away! The sow is mine. Of course, for those of you who may not know, sow is another word for pig, for those of you who may not know, right?
0: Yes, a female pig. Yeah. So um they spent tons of experiments trying to get this voice right. There was 150 hours of work to get Linda Blair's voice transformed into the demon voice, slowing it down, pitch shifting it, speeding up, adding effects. Wow. They played their final result to, for Friedkin, and he says, well, that's terrible. <laughs> so that's not in the movie. Then they bring in a whole bunch of different actors, male actors, deep voices. They mess with their voices, slow them down, speed them up, do all sorts of stuff. And Friedkin's like, no, no, it's not right. And he says... You know, it shouldn't be a male voice. It should be an androgynous voice. It should be have elements of male and female in it. And we shouldn't be able to know what it is. It needs to have a neutral quality. Interesting. And so they hire an actor for this part. Okay. I had no idea who did this voice. Do you know? I, I'm sure I knew in the past. I don't know now. Who was it? It is someone who I know you love, who <laughs> has been in two different movies that we've done okay Mercedes McCambridge oh my God, wow yeah uh from giant giant and, and uh, high noon high noon yeah because she has that deep, totally unique voice yeah and apparently this is what Friedkin says he did to her he strapped her down to a chair so she couldn't move and then he made her drink raw eggs and whiskey to get her voice all messed up and then had her say the lines <laughs>
1: What an ass, what an absolute ass <laughs> You're an actor You can create this Oh, come on
0: Ugh, these people. So, back to the scene <laughs> These power mad people And again, this is where we get into the like Is this a good movie? Yeah. yeah Is it upsetting? Yeah Yeah. How do I feel about this as a piece of art? And how do I feel about putting the actors through what he put him through? Linda Blair stands up, lifts up her nightgown and yells,
4: Fuck me! Fuck me! Fuck me!
0: And everyone is horrified. And then she falls back screaming and they try to restrain her. They drag Chris out of the room. They give her a shot. The door slams. Sharon and Chris are outside. The doctors come out and they say, look, she's, we sedated her. She'll probably sleep towards tomorrow. And Chris is going, well, How could she fly off the bed like that? And again, they're still going, oh, you know, (laughs) people in emotional states. There's the the whole like the 90 pound mom lifts up the car to save her kid. And, you know, we, and what's really funny, I actually should look it up. I've heard that story. The first place I heard that story was in the original Incredible Hulk series with Bill Bixby. He that says it in the pilot. In the yeah. pilot. Wow, yeah, good. Yeah. It's, <laughs> clearly, it hit both of us. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've always ne- remembered that. Moment. But I've never done, what I f- frequently do is, like, try to look up, well, did that happen? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the documented? ev? I've heard that many times, but is it true? I don't know.
4: So what's wrong with
0: her? We still think
3: the temporal
4: lobe. Oh, what are you talking about, for Christ's sakes? Did you see her or not? She's acting like she's fucking out of her mind, psychotic, like a... What are you,
0: a split personality? Or and she's crying. Again, Ellen Burstyn's a great actress. Oh, she's, gosh, she's so good. Fantastic here. job. Yeah. And they go, no, no, no. There are very few proven things of actual split personality, which is true. Right. It hasn't really been proven very, you know, because you know, like, what is somebody doing when they're behaving in different personalities? Are they actually becoming different people, or are they acting like they're becoming different people? Yeah. And where, And where is the difference? Now I know the temptation
4: leap to psychiatry but any reasonable psychiatrist would exhaust the somatic possibilities first.
1: You know incompetent <laughs> psychiatrist
0: it's like I don't know, she she's I really, elevating the bed incompetent well, like psychiatrist so we go let's have more tests <laughs> yeah, cut to that. some other crazy fucking machine <laughs> and Reagan's strapped down and squirming and it's really loud and then we cut to quiet and we're looking at the x-rays hey guess what everything's normal Yeah. And finally, the doctor says, you know what? Maybe it's time to start looking for a psychiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you think? Yeah. Um, And Chris is driving home, and there's all this police and firemen and crowds near her house, but she ignores it. She goes inside. Um, It's dark in her house. She calls. There's no answer. Sure. And as she's walking forward, a demon face, face appears really quickly behind yeah. her. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that uh, Friedkin got a lot of shit for like planting quote unquote subliminal images in his movie. Yes. Um, because they thought, oh, you're trying to mess with our minds and get in our psychology. And I think it was Blatty who correctly said, if you saw it, it wasn't subliminal. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what subliminal is. If everyone yeah. saw it, you know, it's like yeah. Tyler Durden popping up in Fight Club. It's like, yeah. no, that's that's happened so all all those penises yeah uh lights flicker she walks through the den she opens the door and we see her breath is cold because this is a refrigerated room that they shot all this in and she sees the window open she closes the window she sees reagan face down on the bed she goes outside calls for sharon sharon walks into the front door immediately she's like what the fuck did you do why did you leave her alone she's like no Burke was with her yeah. She left it because she had to pick up drugs from the pharmacy or something. And Burke was lifter with her. She's like, well, where's Burke? And then the doorbell rings and in comes a guy who's like the AD or something from the yeah. shoot. Suppose he heard. Heard what? Haven't heard. Burke's dead. And he goes, he must have been drunk and he fell down from the top of your stairs. And by the time he hit the street, he was dead. And again, I think Ellen Burstyn's performance is great. Yeah. The way she takes it in, the way she bursts into tears, and you can see that she's not just crying for Burke. Yeah. She's she's letting out her
1: own. Yeah, yeah, the pressure, of everything. An absent father of the child, the way everything happened with her, all the frustration, yeah, everything like that. And then, boom, throw that one into the mix as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: By the way, Jack McGowan, the actor that played Burke, died a couple of months after the shoot.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, What, heart attack or something? Uh,
0: The flu. Influenza. He was like 54. Good God. Yeah. Um, One of the other reasons they think this shoot is cursed. Yeah, makes sense. And then the scene, which is not in the theatrical version, the spider walk down the stairs. Oh, dude.
1: Ugh. (laughs) even talking about it dude I go into that place because I remember the first time so like I said when I saw the reissue and she starts spider walking I lost my shit man I almost left the theater because it is so believable and unsettling and completely brings to mind the power of the devil and demons which I believe in by the way so seeing it so uh I don't know. So uh, believably done. Just fucked me up, man. Oh, anyway,
0: yeah. Well, two two things about this. One is in the last decade, and again, I don't watch horror movies, but yeah. I see trailers for horror movies. The strange long-haired, usually female, body contorted scary thing seems yeah. to be something that they do a lot in films now. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um and this seems to me to be like the first you know of doing that the, the thing that occurred to me about this film is like why did this scare me so much the idea of it at yeah. five right and why did I avoid it so long and then why did it scare you so much and here's what I think is interesting about it okay I think you just said I believe in demons and the devil yeah, and you, yeah. you believe in God and so it taps into specific stuff for you mm-hmm. that is personal and scary in terms of the way you see the world yes why does it scare me the atheist and the, and the answer, I think, is it's almost the opposite because this movie is about the failure of science. The, the worldview I hold on to, yeah. and I think on some level, even at five years old, I was an atheist because yeah. in my mind, things make sense. Right. And science works, not all the time, but that if you can just figure stuff out, you can make sense of things. Yeah. And all of that weird, illogical, mystical stuff is not true. Okay. But- what if I'm wrong? Yeah. Right. It's the, what if, it's the, what if <laughs> and that, that it's the little, it's like you could have a ton of truth right. and a little grain of rice of doubt is enough to scare the crap out of you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and so I think that's part of how this movie worked is it worked on religious people totally, right. but it worked on secular people too, in a totally different way, you know, because it's about the failure of all of those beliefs yeah. Um oh, man. she's getting hypnotized by a psychiatrist. Finally we got the psychiatrist, so I think we're <laughs> gonna be cool.
3: Is there someone inside you?
4: Sometimes.
3: Is it Captain Howdy?
4: I don't know.
3: If I ask him
4: to tell me, will you let him answer? No.
0: Why not?
2: I'm afraid.
0: And and this is one of the things that's so creepy about the movie is the idea that Reagan can feel what's happening to her. She's still there. Yep That's why another reason why I think by the way it becomes less scary on some level when she's fully possessed Because she's no longer there.
1: Yeah, right Okay, that's actually a
3: great point. Yeah, I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now If you are there you two are hypnotized I must answer all my
0: questions. Oh man, why didn't we see this psychiatrist guy before? He's <laughs> really powerful. He
1: seems on top
0: of it. Um, and he says, Come forward and answer me now. And first, we see Reagan's picture on the mantle fall,
2: <laughs>
0: and then a growl. <clears throat> and she looks up and her face is completely transformed, and she grabs him by the crotch. Yeah, well. Oh. <laughs> apparently a grip of steel yeah and then he falls and the fall is really cool i think this is his homage to psycho in the scene mm. when
1: martin balsam goes down the stairs like that totally yes and I, I think this is like his little mini homage to hitchcock you know who by the way which you spoke about earlier steve uh the fact that they were handing out uh, uh barf bags to people before them. i hitchcock probably lost would have loved that, and I, I think he was still alive when this movie came out. He probably mm-hmm. would have, He probably w- was super jealous that Freakin' was able to get that kind of a reaction uh, from it and have that Barth thing because he loved uh, having people get viscerally involved in the horror of his movies. Hitchcock did so yeah. well,
0: and he did stuff like I think there's some movie I think it's Hitchcock where he had people had to sign a, 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 a waiver yes, to go see was, the movie. It was Psycho.
2: Yeah, is it Psycho? Yeah,
1: yeah. it was Psycho. That you wouldn't um, reveal the ending of the movie to anybody you know.
0: Yeah, That's what it is. Uh, the way they did the fall, by the way, is the guy is strapped. He's like in a wooden box and the camera is attached to the box. And yeah. You just have a couple of grips on either side and they just lower the box down like a recliner to the floor and the camera and the body move together. <laughs> that um, totally works. Yeah. It totally works. And Karis is running on track and now we get to meet one of your good friends, Lee J. Cobb. Well, I wish he was a friend of mine. I wish he was a friend of mine.
1: You know, to be honest with you, that's the thing that I – Steve, I was thinking about it because I was thinking about our show as I was watching it and he came on the screen. I can't explain to you why I love him as much as I do. Like I genuinely love him. I never met him. I've never watched an interview with him, never read a biography about him. But there is something about him when he comes on screen, even when he plays an evil character – I feel such a connection to him and such a sympathy for him Um, and I can't explain it. It's just one of those visceral things or one of those like things that you feel from deep in your bones and in your heart. Uh, that I love. and I, I think he probably went through uh, from what I understand and occasional things I've read about him, like he went through a lot of struggles in his own life and uh, you know trying to maintain and be a good actor and what it must have been like to see people like Brando and Dean and all these incredible actors get all this attention. And here you are doing great work. And uh, even George C. Scott getting all this attention that essentially is like you and him are probably, oh yeah, auditioning for the same roles. I could see him in uh, Dr. Strange Love, I could see him in Patton. You know, the, all those things and, and seeing other people kind of rise above. And I just there's something about the way he the the I don't know, the vulnerability and warmth that he has as an actor, is natural energy that I just gravitate to.
0: Yeah, he's, your, he's clearly your guy. He's my guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. Yeah. In a weird way, I would say, I mean, obviously, we talked about a whole bunch of actors that I know you love. Yeah, I it feels like you have a spe- that he's special. You know, yeah. beyond even beyond, I know that I know you love Brando, but your feelings yeah. about Brando are not the same as your feelings about Lee J. Cobb.
1: Nah, you know, nah. feels the Brando is complicated. Wells, too, yeah, and I love Wells to pieces, but there's something about Lee J. that I just was like, if I so, and I was thinking about this too, real quick. I'm sorry to go on about this real quick, but like that that question people ask, you know, who would you like to have dinner with, alive or dead? And I, I know when I was watching this movie this morning, I thought to myself, it's Lee J. Cobb, it's actually Lee J. Cobb to sit with him for two hours to interview him on the deep cut for two hours about mm-hmm. his career and his life and being in all these incredible movies uh, and how he endured for so many years, I think would have been such a gift, man. would be such a gift. So, yeah.
0: um, he, I think what's so, what's so cool because the other movies I think that we've done with him are 12 angry men and yeah. on the waterfront. Yes. And any else else with him, mm-hmm. this character is so different. Yeah. Those are such big, yeah, dangerous, angry people and yeah. this guy's nice no yeah soft spoken he's he's, he's, he's he's good at his job yeah
1: very much not abrasive or aggressive in trying to get the answers
0: um
1: yeah he's and very, he, is in- he a bigger part of the book
0: yeah because okay. the book's a mystery he said like karis is the main character and mom those are the two most active people i right. think kinderman is equal to them in the book okay. a lot more of him Okay. Um, and this and he's very Columbo-like as a detective, yeah. you know, yeah, he's sort of kind <laughs> of odd and quirky and funny, but you can see yeah. that he's the wheels are turning and observing. This is quite a long scene, and it's very funny. I'm not going to go into detail on it, but but basically he's going, look, there was these desecrations in the church, and the fact is this guy Burke was not, it probably was a murder because his head was twisted completely around, and, and the priest says, well, Kara says, well, could the fall have done that? He's like, maybe one in a thousand the fall could have done that, but it's much more likely a really strong man killed him. And so is there a disgruntled priest or someone like that that you think might've done this? And of course, Karras is the psychiatrist, not only a psychiatrist, but a priest. And he's like, yeah. first of all, no. And second of all, if there was, I wouldn't tell you.
4: Not to bother you with trivia, but a psychiatrist in sunny California, no less, was put in jail for not telling the police what he knew about a patient. Is
1: that a threat? No, I mentioned it only in passing.
0: And it's a very cute scene. And they have a very funny, charming sort of relationship.
1: Yeah. He even asks him to go. He's got, I got extra tickets to go to the movie theater. Do you want to come to the movie theater with me? I love that uh, back and forth between them. Yeah,
0: it's, Well, and he says, what movie's playing? He says, it's Othello. Who's in it?
4: Who's in it? Debbie Reynolds does Desdemona and Othello Groucho
1: Marx. You yeah, happy? I've seen it. He says, "I've seen it." He says, "I've seen it." (laughs) It's Uh, funny, yeah. And also, Steve, when they're talking John Garfield, so this film is existing in a world where those movies exist, Mm -hmm. like uh, for us. So it's like it's 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 an interesting way that they're uh, they're doing that. You know,
0: it's it's fun. Um, And the whole movie movie pass thing is way bigger in the book. Oh wow! Because part of it is that's Carl's uh, um, alibi is that he was at Othello. And that is why he Son could, yeah. And so, so it go, it's, it goes into much more stuff. Wow. Uh, and yeah. I think it's totally correct that it was cut out.
3: It looks like the type of disorder that's uh, rarely ever seen anymore, except in primitive cultures. We we call it uh, some nambula form possession. It starts with a conflict or a guilt, and it leads to the patient's delusions that his body has been invaded by some
0: alien intelligence and now we're sitting at this big conference with all the doctors and this is where you go to she's a rich famous person Mm -hmm. so she could get the whole hospital staff to be working on her daughter oh yeah absolutely and it's uh everybody's in their white coats except chris who's in a black jacket which is a good choice
4: look i'm telling you again and you better believe me I am not going to lock her up in some goddamn asylum. Right? It's our- and I don't hey. care what you call it, I'm not putting her away. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. You're sorry? Jesus Christ. 88 doctors, and all you can tell me with all of your bullshit is.
0: And she breaks down. Uh, and then one of the doctors says, Of course, there's one outside chance for a cure.
1: Have you ever heard of exorcism?
0: I love the way he just
1: drops it on the table. Have you ever heard of exorcism? And none of the doctors go, what did you say? They're just like, yeah,
0: exorcism. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Well, what's so funny is, whoa, whoa, no psychiatry. No, we don't want to do psychiatry. Hold on. We don't go run into psychiatry. We see one psychiatrist in one scene, and then they go, have you ever heard of exorcism? (laughs) Well, if that doesn't work, we got to try exorcism. (laughs) Um, By the way, in the Roland Doe case that this is supposedly based on, it's a a boy, uh, Uh and the parents said weird stuff was happening in the house, and the boy was talking in different voices, so they took him to their Lutheran pastor, and the Lutheran pastor looked at him and said, you know what? Have you ever heard of exorcism? You should call the Catholics. I think you need an exorcism. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. You want to know what? Okay. And this is uh, Miles Schultz is the name of the Lutheran pastor. You want to okay. know what his hobby was? Parapsychology.
1: <laughs> of course it
0: was. So, like, the guy who's into mystical weird things sees the kid for a day and goes, you know what? <laughs> Have you ever heard of exorcism? <laughs> Uh, do you like pre- lead
1: inner films <laughs>
0: no, <sure. laughs> um, what's so funny if you listen to Friedkin talk he he yeah. talks of exorcism like this is established fact i mean this yeah, is yeah, yeah. the way exorcisms generally go and when people are possessed this blah, blah, blah i'm like this is this is not established fact right bill right. Um, <laughs> we go home kinderman is outside he's looking at the stairs and this is when he finds that little clay um, sculpture thing, and then there's a knock on the door, and there's Kinderman, and they sit down and have a conversation.
4: The deceased comes to visit, stays only 20 minutes, and leaves all alone a very sick girl. And speaking plainly, Mrs. McNeil, it isn't likely he would fall from a window. Besides, a fall wouldn't do to his neck what we found, except maybe one chance in a thousand. Now, my hunch... My opinion, he was killed by a very powerful man.
0: And this is where the Carl thing comes in. Yeah.
4: But nobody was in the room except your daughter, so how can this be?
0: He gets up and looks around and he finds some of uh, Reagan's drawings and he finds the clay sculptures. Yeah. Which again is like, I. It's hard for me to know because I read the book, but my feeling is I don't think the audience is connecting dots between the desecration and the clay sculptures and the, I don't think that's happening. Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah. The, you know, yeah. And the last thing that happens in the scene is he asks for her autograph. Yeah,
1: which is a very, once again, shows you a little more about his character. And Lee Cobb plays it so well. He says, it's for my daughter, you know, and then when asked with the name, he can't lie to her. Yeah. Guy, he's so embarrassed, takes his hat off. And it says, it's actually for me. Or or, I th- or rubs his head or something like that. But it's like, it says it in, in a very shy way that it's actually for me. You know, it's another way to like this guy. It's perfectly done.
0: Absolutely. And, and and he's leaving and she says,
1: you're a very nice lady. You're
0: a nice man. And he says, I'll come back when she's feeling better. And he exits, she closes the door and she locks the chain. And then you see the emotional reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's an actress. Mm-hmm. She just acted a whole scene of keeping her shit together.
1: Is this another, I've read the book, is this a thing? Like, do they have any kind of flirting? Like, is this a Jaws no. situation with Hooper and uh, Brody's wife? No, no okay.
0: there's no, okay. no no, flirting is going Okay, on. okay. And then we hear screaming and she runs upstairs and she opens the door and man, this is where we get, it. I mean, shit is flying around everywhere. Her crotch is bloody. And she says, Let Jesus fuck you. Oh my god. And she grabs a cross, masturbates with the cross. Yeah. This is the other scene that fucked people up. Yeah. I mean, and this is
1: where my parents this is why my parents wouldn't let me watch this movie.
0: And they it. were correct, by the way. <laughs> I don't know how old you were, but you were too young <laughs> for this. <laughs> um so he told told this is Linda Blair for most of it. Yeah. And he told her, you have to put this cross between your legs and stick it in and out. And this, again, this is the Friedkin story. Mm-hmm. He, she said, oh, no, I'm not doing that. And he said, oh, yes, you are. And then he says, I tricked her and I kidded her and I got her to do it. Jesus. girl's 12. Off. I know what a jerk off, man. And it's funny because we're almost exactly the same time as Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver.
1: Mm.
2: But
0: I, I just think they're different. I mean, that, that's uncomfortable, too. Right. But they had body doubles for her for all the things that were physical. Yeah. And she just talks about things. That's not what's happening here. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. She had, between her legs, she had a box. And the box was filled with KY jelly dyed with red food coloring. And she's driving the cross into this box between her legs and pulling it out. Yeah. Um, she pulls mom's head to her bloody crotch. Yeah. It's uh, is awful yells lick me lick me and then he hits her and she goes flying across the room hits the ground and screams when she hits the ground so here's how they did that she's attached to a wire and there's a stunt man who's the stunt coordinator who's pulling her across the room and they do a couple of rehearsals and ellen burstin goes to friedkin and says listen they're pulling me way too hard i'm gonna get hurt i don't feel safe doing this and he says well we need to get the shot and she says, well, they're pulling me too hard. I don't feel safe. I'm not going to do it. And then he turns to the stunt coordinator and says, okay, don't pull her so hard this time. And she walks back. And just before she, he's, this is what uh, Ellen Burstyn says. Just before Freakin says action, he she sees him make eye contact with the stunt coordinator and wink and go and give a look of like, do it. And so she gets pulled harder than she had ever been pulled in the rehearsals. Jesus lands on her coccyx. The scream of pain in the movie is her screaming in pain. Wow. Uh, didn't break her coccyx fortunately, which is not that hard to break. Right. She is furious. Naturally gets up screaming. She yell she yells that turn that fucking camera off. And she basically says, you don't need to do that to make a movie. You know, yeah, yeah. And I, and the thing is, I think listening to Freaking Interviewed, he's happy about all these choices because he made a good movie. Right. You know, and he did make a good movie. It is a good movie. I'm not saying it's not. Um, And now things start moving in this place. Sharon runs up to try to come in, and a chest of or chair blocks the door. Chest of drawers comes and almost hits Chris. This is again all practical effects. Mm. And then uh, we see the head turn around backwards. For the first time yeah. we hear Burke's voice coming out of the turning head that says
4: do you know what she did your canting daughter
0: and by the way so Linda Blair is saying all these things yeah yeah right you know and she her performance is amazing in a yeah. lot of ways to do what she did it's pretty amazing yeah. finally Karis and Chris McNeil are together
4: the priests are pretty tight man, then huh
0: That depends. On what? The priest. And she says, what if a person came to you, a murderer of some kind? Would you have to turn him in? Well, if he came to me for
4: spiritual
3: advice, I'd say no.
4: You wouldn't?
0: No, I wouldn't. Mm. But I would try to convince him to turn himself in. Uh And immediately, her next question is, how do you go about getting an exorcism?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love how she tricks him in. Like she just walks him into this situation and then he's there his reaction. Come again, excuse me or something like that. It's so perfect. And then he, says well,
0: he says, well, first of all, I would have to get him in a time machine to go back to the 16th century. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He says, Mrs. Mediel, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who's performed an exorcism.
4: It just so happens that somebody very close to me is, is probably possessed and needs an exorcism. Father Karras is my little girl.
3: <laughs> and that's all the more reason to forget about exorcism. Why? I don't understand. To begin with, it could make things worse.
0: Even if you were to do it, the Catholic Church has to investigate and see if it's warranted. Yeah. And meanwhile, your daughter, she needs help. You, um... You need a psychiatrist <laughs> We're back yeah. to repack a psychiatrist again. <laughs> and she, again, Ellen, I know I keep saying but Ellen's great. Could you see her? Yes, I could. I could see her as a psychiatrist, but I can't oh, see her. Oh, not
4: a psychiatrist. She needs a priest. She's already seen every fucking psychiatrist in the world, and they sent me to you. Now you're going to send me back to them? Jesus Christ wants somebody.
3: Oh, no, you don't me? see, you don't understand oh, your daughter. God,
4: can't you help her? Just help her.
0: <laughs> he comforts her. We're inside the house. We can hear Reagan or Mercedes McCambridge more likely groaning, goes upstairs, and he goes inside. I'm a friend
3: of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen
0: the straps? Huh? I think it's Dick Smith is the name of the makeup artist. Unbelievable! Mm. The, the the transformation that we're seeing in her face, um, the yeah. the scarring, the trapped lips, the color of her face. It was a this is an amazing makeup job. Well, then let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras.
3: And I ain't the devil.
4: Now kindly undo these straps.
0: And it is funny. This is where it became, became kind of less scary for me. Yeah. Once we're in with her at this time. And then we hear him say.
4: Can you helping old the boy father.
0: In that voice of that homeless guy. Yeah. Your mother's in here with his car. If that's true, then you must know my mother's maiden name. And we see those contact lenses those crazy eyes Mm. that she had so linda blair couldn't handle the contacts she couldn't put them in and her eyes are really sensitive so they sprayed numbing things in her eyes so they numbed out her eyes to put the contacts in oh my god yeah
1: (sighs) well i think she's spoken about this in numerous interviews how much this film messed her up
0: uh, no she said that's not what i've what i've heard her say maybe you've heard her say that what i've heard her say is no i was fine Okay. It's kind of more like it might have messed someone else up, but it didn't mess me up. Okay. I mean, I, I don't, and I don't know the answer. I, I really don't. Yeah, I mean, I, even Jody said she was messed up from Taxi Driver, and yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So I don't
1: know. Maybe I, I don't. I doubt it, but maybe.
0: And then uh, she vomits on Karis, <laughs> right in his face. <laughs> Friedkin said it was going to hit him in the chest.
3: Oh shit! Oh wow! Okay. You ask me what I think is best for your daughter. Six months under
0: observation in the best hospital you can find. And mom insists that's not my daughter. That right. is not her. Now, I want you
4: to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that
0: outside he turn he's leaving but he turns back and says did reagan know a priest was coming and she says no did you know my mother died recently
4: yes i did i'm very sorry
3: no is reagan aware of it
4: not at all why'd you ask
3: it's not important good
0: night <laughs> one of the interesting things about scary movies i think is that in general it's true so and what i mean by that is that Mm -hmm. If you have a movie where people are starting to worry that they're vampires, well, there are vampires. You know, like doubt, the doubt, doubting the mystical thing is a natural part of scary mystical movies. Yeah, And almost always, it's not Scooby-Doo. There's not an old guy in a mask pretending to be the devil. You're really dealing with the devil because that's how scary movies operate. So part of what's happening, and I think through the medical procedures and all the other stuff, you know you went to see The Exorcist. So yeah. we all know at the very beginning of the movie that the kid is gonna be possessed by a demon. It's just the right. characters in the movie that don't.
3: What an excellent day for an exorcism.
0: He says, <laughs> you'd like that? And the answer is, intensely.
3: But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us
0: together. You and Reagan? You and us. And then a drawer pops open and he says, did you do that? Uh,
4: do it again
0: in time no no in time this is the weird thing about the movie why is the devil stalling why does the devil not show things well i mean uh, this is an interesting point but the the first
1: thing i can think of is we're trying to put human time on a demon a demon that has been around for centuries mm. and so what we think what we think is quick uh, oh, we uh, to a demon a demon understands the long game completely because it probably jumps from person to person as it possesses. Uh, so to them, the, you know, the, all in time, everything he says is all in time, even the straps. That would be a vulgar display of my power to rip away from them, which he does eventually later on when mm-hmm. Max von Sydow is doing all the stuff he's doing. So clearly could have ripped from the straps anytime. Uh, it wanted to. And so it just, it's just a whole thing that it's playing games with everybody and messing around with everybody and taking its time to do the things that it wants to do when it wants to do it.
0: I think you're totally right. And what you made me think of is, so there's a scene we're going to get to later on hmm. where uh, Max Fonsito's there and Karis asks him, why this g- little girl? And his answer is, I think it's to make all of us despair. Hmm. And what I, what you made me think of is that it's actually easier to deal with the thing that you know what it is, even if that thing is the devil, yeah. than to deal with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Like, uncertainty is the enemy of faith. Like, and because yes. and one of the things that I've always thought about this film is you have a character who's lost faith. Mm-hmm. Well, if the girl is really possessed, then you your faith has been proven because there is a mystical world outside of our world. Mm-hmm. it's if she's not possessed that you wouldn't, that, that, that your faith can be in question, you know? Yeah. And so the devil not saying his mom's maiden name allows Karis to stay in doubt. Yeah. If he said his maiden name, her maiden name, then it's like, shit, this is the devil. You know, that actually, now I know what it is. Well, now we have to have an exorcism. You know what I mean?
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, uncertainty makes it scarier. How long are you planning to stay in Reagan? Until she rocks and lies stinking in the earth. Karis takes out a bottle, sprinkles what we think is holy water on it, and there's a huge reaction.
2: Uh, oh, it burns!
4: it yeah,
0: Karis walks out. I told Reagan that was
3: holy water. I sprinkled it on her, and she reacted very violently. It's tap
0: water. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. This is just what we were just talking about. This mm-hmm. is doubt. Yeah. If Reagan had gone, that's not holy water, it's tap water, you can't hurt me with that. Well, then that would have proven that this is the devil. Yeah. But having to react like this means we can stay in doubt. And that doesn't help support a case for possession.
4: She killed Burke Dennings. She pushed
0: him out her window. Like she finally confesses what she suspects. Now we hear on a tape recorder, we hear Reagan talking this gibberish, and he's he's with a language expert, and this is much bigger in the book, and the language expert goes, oh, no, that's a language. It's English in reverse. And we play it. And now we are it's later on. And he's listening to this tape. And we hear.
4: I am no one. I am no one. Fear the priest. Fear the priest. Fear. Oh. Oh. Marin.
0: And Marin is Max von Sydow's character's name. Mm. So that's the priest we're fearing. Right, right, right. And then the phone rings really loudly. Again, we're quiet, loud, quiet, loud. And he has a huge startled reaction. Really good acting on our uh, Karis' part. You want to know why his reaction was so startled? No, why? Friedkin fired a shotgun with blanks right near his head. Jesus Christ. In fact, he fired blanks all the time on the set just get people Miller was furious he's like I, I'm acting you don't need to do that like you don't need to do that apparently freaking reduced multiple crew members and actors to tears multiple times Max von Sydow would come on the set and the first thing he'd do is ask the stunt coordinator where are all the guns? <laughs> and so they, would, they would tell him well there's a revolver behind that thing there's a shotgun over there there's this over there because he knew what Friedkin was going to try to do to him and he didn't right. want him you know and, and Max Rossito is very charming in the interview and he's like well those aren't things that's not a directing technique I had experienced before <laughs> you know he's very like calm about it uh Ellen Burstyn said my dear friend Billy Friedkin is a maniac hmm. Terrace gets back to the house, they run upstairs. It's He's with Sharon and she says, I don't want Chris to see this. They go in the room, it's now super cold in there. They built this room inside a freezer, essentially. Uh, Friedkin didn't wanna shoot until he got it down to zero degrees. Jesus. Really, really cold. And then, but then the the set lights would heat it up. So after about 45 minutes of shooting, it would be too warm to see people's breath and they had to cool it down again. Um, All of the crew are in their, like, they described it as like their Eddie Bauer parkas and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, The actors are mostly dressed fairly warmly. Uh, Linda Blair is in a nightgown. So it's really, really cold. Mm -hmm. Really, really cold. And uh, Sharon pulls back the sheets, exposes uh, Reagan's stomach, and we see the words, help me, appear. Yeah. Is that freak – so I mean, watching it this time, did that freak you out?
1: No, uh, no, it was more an appreciation. I think when I was younger, it freaked me the fuck out. But uh, no, older, it's more of an appreciation of like, this is so good because like you just mentioned earlier, the idea of doubt, Steve, right? The back and mm-hmm. forth. Um, and I think this is fantastic because the guy who was caught a crisis of faith is doubting the situation. And then he sees the writing on from the inside out, from the right. inside out. Uh, and – There's no way that's happening without some sort of possession. Uh, And so I admired that that was something that – I don't know if it's in the book, but – um, I yeah, think the way it I think was, it is yeah. okay, but I think the way it was done in the film because initially he looks and he, and you stay the camera stays on it for just a little bit. And you see some hint of something, and then when they go back to the close up, then it's really obvious what's there, and it's to let you know, you know, this this is to visualize that it's this young girl trapped inside of her own body trying to scratch uh, a, a desperate message out. You know, um, it's
0: it. it's funny. Maybe I'm have less. A- of an imagination now (laughs) because I think that idea would have scared the crap out of me when I was younger Mm -hmm. and did, I'm sure, and did. Because what would happen with me, like I couldn't handle like you're at the campfire and they tell ghost stories or the story of the guy with the hook or the story, yeah Uh, whatever it was, my brain as a kid would spin on that thing. Okay, And in particular, these ideas of possession and devils and being trapped, like I, I couldn't stop myself from thinking about that, Yeah, you know? And so this helped me, the idea of this person, as you described perfectly, trying to scratch the way out, trapped Mm -hmm. inside. Yeah, I would have thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and gotten really freaked. And this time I watched it and went, oh, that's an interesting bit of filmmaking. You know, I didn't have a, (laughs) I didn't imagine myself there the way I did when I was younger. And I think, again, it goes to what we said at the very beginning is that the scary part of movies is what's in your head. Yeah, You know, it's how you imagine things. Karis um, has the meeting with the church officials saying, I think this thing is real. And they, you know, it's funny. He had said this whole thing. of, Oh, it takes six months to prove the exorcism, whatever. And that's not what happens at all. They go, okay, well, let's see if we can find an exorcist for you. Yeah, you right. Know, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. <laughs> let's put it together. <laughs> and then they, later on, the the, the bishops or whoever have a meeting, they say, we should get married. He's had experience. I didn't know that.
3: 10, 12 years ago, I think, in Africa. The exorcism supposedly lasted months. I Heard it damn near killed him.
0: Cut to this beautiful wooded hill, and, uh, and there's a priest walking away, which is Max von Sydow, and someone grabs him. We dissolve to Reagan's face. Yeah. And then we dissolve again, and it is a foggy night, and a cab pulls up, and there's a street light, and there is a priest that gets out of the cab and stands under the street light. And that is the poster, it's on the cover of the DVD, it is the image of the Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful shot. And that is Max von Sydow's first day of shooting. Yeah, yeah. He's such a good actor. Mm -hmm. His whole, all the energy, the gentleness of him.
3: Do you wanna hear the background of the case first,
0: Father? Why? Which I find so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because Harris has a foot in the world of science. A psychiatrist, a doctor, would want to hear the case history. Marin went face-to-face with a demon at a dig in Iraq, and that told him that he had to go back home because there was something for him to do, and then he got this call, so that's why he's here. Why would he need to know any information? Right, right. You know? Because this is the thing. It just occurred to me. What is Karis trying to do? He's trying to save a little girl. Yep. What's Marin trying to do? He's here to fight the devil. I mean, it's not that he doesn't care about the little girl. Right, right. But that's not why he's here. The demon is a liar. He will like to confuse us, but he will
4: also mix lies with the truth to attack us.
0: And the camera pushes in on the door.
4: The attack is psychological, Damien, and
0: powerful. Remember that. Do not listen. Karis is still treating it like a psychiatrist. He's like- I think it might be helpful if I gave you some background on the different personalities
3: Reagan has manifested. So far, I'd say there seem to be three. She's convinced that There's she's- There's only
0: one. <laughs> I love the way this whole scene is shot. Yeah. Yeah. They head into the room, super cold. We see their breath. It's all shot very close with long lenses. It's very cut up. We had a lot of wider shots at the beginning of the movie. And what is the first thing that Reagan says? She says, Stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. Be silent. Mm. Mm. I think the other thing that's a violation, there's so many violations in this film and, and obviously they're physical violations, but one of the violations is just having this young girl say these horrible things. Yeah. You know, this virginal pure person say awful, awful stuff, which I get.
1: I mean, it's supposed to, you know, kind of unsettle you that a person like that would do that. You know what I'm saying? Would say these things. So I get it, but it's still, it's, I don't know. It's just pushing the boundaries of it
0: all. Well, that's what this movie is. Yeah, and 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 as a as a very anti censorship person, I think we should push the boundaries. I yeah. think that's something that needs to happen. And I and, and there's like I always it's very hard for me to separate the actors on the set and the director and this actual twelve year old girl Linda Blair right. from a piece of art, you know. And there's no question in my mind that Friedkin treated these people badly. Yeah, but if I separate that out. What do I think of this as a piece of art, and 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 is it good to come out and violate all of these things? What does that do to us? I don't really have an answer. Yeah, you know. Yep. The performances from both Max von Sydow uh, and Miller are amazing, and you can see how Karis is nervous and anxious, and this is difficult, and and Marin just is very very strong. Oh. In every need
4: he has delivered me. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is
0: now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. And the bed is bouncing. It's rising yeah. up and down. They're praying. Reagan's screaming. It's extremely chaotic. There's holy water and there's screams. The bed floats off the ground. Karis is totally stunned. Amen. The response, please, it.
3: <laughs> and let my cry
0: come unto thee. Now the bed slowly drops down and you get a sense of, oh, this is working on some level. Um, By the way, the way they did this bed, because they have different beds for different jobs. The way they did this one is really interesting, which is that the bed is actually rigged to be up. And in order to make it down, you have to use force. So they're not lifting it. They're pushing it down. And that's what gives it that weird floaty quality. Because if you lifted it up, it would look like what it looks like when something is lifted up. But because there there's actually resistance as they put it down, it kind of wobbles in this really interesting way. Yeah. Um, the lights are flickering, and there's this one again, subliminal-ish shot where in the flicker, Reagan's face becomes the demon face. Yeah. Which is super creepy. And Karis sees it and he's starting to freak out. Mary yeah. hesitates. Um, and Marin brings the purple stole to her and yeah. then just, this vomit is so much grosser than the projectile vomit earlier. <laughs> yeah. This is like the slow flow out of her mouth. Yeah. So nasty. And we hear the demon laughing in the background. And now we see some of Marin's weakness. Now he's coughing, he's shaking. <laughs> I cast you out! <laughs> and then there's more horrible things that Reagan says. Again, they're giving their prayers. It's building intensity. The room is cracking. The ceiling is cracking. The door is cracking. Um, The head spins completely around and faces them. By the way, when they first, this is a dummy. At one point, they drove the dummy around the streets of D.C. just to see how people reacted. (laughs) People did not react well to this. (laughs) The first time they shot it, they didn't have the dummy breathe. Yeah. And Friedkin went, That doesn't look good. And then they re-rigged it so it would breathe, so you would see the dummy's breath. And that sold the gag, which I think right. is absolutely right. Yeah. The room is shaking. The room is really on a gimbal, so it's really shaking. Um, and then as they're as they're doing their prayer, there are moments where we see gashes appear on Reagan's legs and on yeah. her body. The
2: power of Christ
0: compels you. <laughs> the sound design is amazing in this movie. Oh yeah. And one of the things, and again, this is Friedkin's story, is that. He heard a movie, and I don't remember what it is, and goes, this sound is amazing, this film, who did the sound? And they go, it's a name named, a guy named Gonzalo Gav- Gavira. Mm-hmm. Gonzalo Gavira, and who's uh, Mexican, and Freakin goes, I wanna meet him. And he meets him, again, Freakin's story, showed him the film, Gonzalo does not speak English at all, according to Freakin, but loved yeah. the movie. And then they just put him in a room with a microphone in a studio, and he just made all sorts of noises with his clothing, with his wallet, with his shoes, oh, wow. with his voice. And a lot of that is what's in the movie. So some of those gashes where you hear like, psh, psh, that's just noises that Gonzalo made. Yeah. The non-English speaking guy that Friedkin discovered. <laughs> Again, I, I, maybe his story is totally true, but all, all the stories ring, ring a little overly dramatic to me. And they keep going, repeating the prayer, repeating the prayer. And it is super, super intense.
2: The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels
4: you.
0: And again, the bed lowers down, and we have a sense that maybe this is working. And we hear, "It's God Himself who commands you. The majestic Christ commands you. God the Father commands you." And uh, she rises up, and this is what you were talking. Suddenly, she's yeah. free, and she yep. hits Karis in the face, who goes down. Marin continues uh, without Karis. More shaking than Marin goes down, and she rises up silhouetted. And as she does that in the background, we see that statue from Iraq from the beginning of the film the link between the demon and this character that's possessed this kid. Are you tired? Let's rest before we start again. Now we're on the stairs. And again, I think it's really, really well shot because the stairs kind of wrap around and so they're facing opposite directions on opposite pieces of stairs. Right. And this is what what I mentioned before is he says, Why this girl doesn't make sense.
4: I think the point is to make us despair, to see ourselves as animal and ugly, to reject the possibility that God could love us
0: I think that is so key to the movie. Yeah. That scene is cut out of the theatrical version. Yes. Yeah. I can't understand why you cut that scene out. Yeah. It's know, a great right? scene. Yeah. You know, there's other things that he put in or took out that I I, I have different feelings about that, but this scene is really important. Mm-hmm. And then we go into the bathroom, and suddenly now we see Marin's weakness. His hands are shaking. He has to take that pill. Um, again, Max von Sydow is great. Once again, hey, fighting with the devil, right? Doing yeah. his own chess match with the oh, which like right. seven seal. How did I not
1: think about that? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, um, Just watching it this time, I was like, wow, what an
0: incredible bookend. Uh, yeah. it,
1: of course, he lived way much longer, but like, yeah. what an incredible bookend.
0: Um, Karis goes in alone, which I would not do. No, right. And there is his mom sitting on the bed. Oh, my
4: God. Dimmy, why not you do this to me?
0: And he's going, you're not my mother. And then M- M- Marin comes in and she continues to talk to him as if it's his mother, and yeah. he starts freaking out.
4: Because
1: he's broken. And he- yeah. Marin told him, Don't listen. They're they're gonna t- find your biggest weakest thing and they're gonna exploit it. Say it over and over again. Do not listen. But Marin is too consumed with his own guilt over his mom. He hasn't come to terms with it, and so no matter what he says to th- to convince them that he's he's able to. to oh, sorry, Karis is, is, is no matter what he says to convince them that he's that he's okay. When they start, it's it's done. You know what I'm saying? It's, he gets totally like messed up by it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know who I think you should never make a scary movie about that experienced hallucinogenic users. True. Because if there's someone who's done a lot of acid, they're used to like not going down the bad thought hole to have the bad trip. And so if they walk in and see their mom on the bed, they're like, hmm, this is what's happening now. Okay. Right. Right. (laughs) Because they can handle the the, the different waves of insanity better. Right. But, But actually, and all joking aside, you always take the fragile people to the scary movies. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like Karis, if he was had perfect faith, wouldn't be so interesting in this film. Mm -hmm. It's his lack of faith. It's all of his uncertainties that make him interesting. So he goes outside and we see now a fairly weakened Marin go back to the ritual. He pulls out the Holy water. He pulls out the purple stole. He, he kneels down. Um, We hear more writhing and groaning and he goes back to the ritual. And Karis is outside praying and Chris comes out and asks, is it over? And he shakes his head. No. And then Chris says,
4: is she going to die?
0: And he says, no. Strongly. Yeah. And yes, exactly. So my question at this moment is, does he know what he's going to do now? Um, I don't think he knows what he's going to do now, but I know that he is, but I sense that he's determined
1: to not let yet another person die on his watch uh and yet another person that he deems as an innocent die on his watch you know or un, you know at his expense uh, so he's in that that and that's why i think that second no is more forceful because he's like he's determined not to let it happen again
0: that's what i think too i don't think he knows specifically what he's going to do yeah no but no, i no. think he has decided that he is not going to quit that he that if it costs him his life he is going to fight for this girl yeah, that's what I that's what I think. Just as this happened, the doorbell rings and Chris goes down. And she puts the chain on the door. Um, it's Kinderman on the other side. Yeah. Karis goes into the room, finds Marin
1: dead. We, it's funny that we never see how it happened. We never know why uh, the holy water is poured out on the bed and she's in the corner or the demons in the corner in her in uh, Reagan's body. Uh, and as Alex is looking, or as, uh, sorry, as Karis is looking at as, as Karis is looking at <laughs> <laughs> at but now wouldn't that be a switch? As uh, Mongo is looking at Merin, no, but as as Karis is looking at Merin's, uh body, um, she starts to this childlike giggle, which yeah. is so. How can I say this correctly? It's such a insult. It's such a purposeful dismissal and condescension and trying to dig at you uh so i get his reaction right afterwards
0: yeah i mean there, there are two things that happen There's a bunch of things that happen that are odd the first is that he tries he beats oh, onto yeah. his chest yeah, tries to get like that i'm adjustable. like dude i don't think that's how you do this <laughs> i mean like leaning over a person with both hands hitting yeah. them as hard as possible in the center of the chest right. that's not how i was trained in boy scouts to do cpr i'm yeah, just saying true. That doesn't seem correct. And then when Reagan giggles, he yells, "You son of a bitch!" And he throws her on the ground and just starts beating on her. Yeah. And I think the first time you see this movie, it's just like, "Where's this movie going? Like, what's going to happen?" Yeah. Right. Right. And then the, what's going to happen is in the next seconds, we're going. To, this is going to be over. He says, "Take me, come, yeah, come into, into me. me, come into
1: me." Yeah. Yeah.
3: Come into me.
0: God damn you. Take me. Take me. And he stands up and there's this moment where his face changes into yeah. the demon face with the eyes and you know, oh shit, he's possessed. And then I think really good performance from Jason Miller of like fighting that. Yeah. His face kind of comes back to mo- normal and he screams no and he jumps out the window. No! By the way, this is a real stunt of a dude. These are real steps that are in Georgetown. Yes,
1: yes, they are. I've visited them a couple of times. Wow. Creepy as F. I
0: bet. Well, and they had to build out the window because it, it was a little too far away from the steps. So that's extended. And then there is a real stuntman that rolled down these steps. And they padded him up as best they could. And it's a really dangerous stunt. There was apparently a huge crowd of Georgetown students just there to watch. The guy had to do it twice. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, and then Chris and Kinderman come in, and we hear Reagan call to her mother in her voice. <laughs> and we know that it's gone. And they yeah. look out the window, and there is a bloody body at the bottom of those steps. And now the police are showing up, and his friend, uh, Father Dyer, comes running out, finds the body. His hands are shaking. He asks, Are you
4: sorry for I'm sorry for having a God. of God. All the sins of your past life.
0: And there's no response. And he gives him the last rites. Uh, The performance of the priest is really good in this moment. Yeah. Would you like to know how William Friedkin got this performance? Uh, okay, sure, tell me. So, uh, it's the middle of the night. Again, this is uh, Father O'Malley, who's a real Jesuit priest. And they've done 17 takes, it's two in the morning, it's really stiff. Friedkin goes to O'Malley and goes like, it's not working, you're not emotional enough, this is your best friend who's dying and, and, you, and you need to have an emotional reaction. And he kinda goes, look, it's two in the morning, I'm tired, I've done it 17 times, I did it the best I yeah. can do it. And Friedkin goes, do you trust me? And he goes, yeah, I trust you. And Friedkin slaps him as hard as he can across his face. Wow. There were a lot of Catholics on the crew they did not like this, Yeah, I bet. but they rolled the camera and O'Malley says his hand was shaking and that was because he was so angry <laughs> yeah. and upset that this yeah. dude had just slapped him across the face. Right. Uh, here's a thing. I'm not sure if I should include it, but I'll tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. So in 2019, uh, Father William O'Malley was accused of sexual assault uh, oh. from the 90s. Okay. Uh, I know nothing other than that. I don't yeah. know how, what the cases were. I don't know if it was one people or many people. I don't know if there was any evidence. I don't know if this was a pattern. I know absolutely nothing about it, other than that no. there was an accusation of this particular priest. We're packing up. Time to go. Carl's loading up some luggage. Everything in the house is all covered up. They end up outside. And there Father Dyer is, and he comes and approaches her, and Chris says, She doesn't remember any of it. That's good. And then Reagan looks up at the priest, who she doesn't remember, and sees the collar, and then goes and embraces him and kisses him before she gets in the car. Chris calls the priest over and says, I thought you'd like to keep this, and hands him the coin. And this is the coin that Marin found in the dig in Iraq, and he takes it. And in the director's cut, he hands it back to her in the theatrical cut, he keeps it. I don't understand why you would hand that coin back to her. Yeah. That is weird. Yeah. I agree. Because yeah. the coin's associated with evil. Like, why would the priest give that to her? Yeah. And they drive away, and Linda, Linda Blair, well, that's what I was thinking, it's Yeah. a sequel. Yeah. Um, and Linda Blair looks out of the car, and she waves as he drives away, and we see the priest walk away, and he walks over to the stairs, and chooses not to walk down those stairs. Right. And that is the end of the theatrical cut. Right. And there's this other scene that William Blatty thought just couldn't believe that Friedkin had taken out. And that is a final scene uh, with Lee J. Cobb and Father Dyer that is basically the Louis looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship sort of scene where he talks yeah. about the movie passes and stuff like that. And Blatty wanted it back in because he wanted didn't want the movie to be such a downer. And Friedkin thought the more dark, ambiguous ending was better. And I totally agree with Friedkin. I don't think this last scene should be in the movie. Yeah. I think it should end. She drives away. We see the steps. That's it. I don't have to say this is a massive hit. Yeah. It was released in 24 theaters because that's how they used to do it. You just release it a little and roll it out further. And there are lines around the block. Um, And yes, as I said before, people are throwing up and running out of screenings. There were people, by the way, because it's rated R, Mm -hmm. um, and people brought their kids to it. Yeah. And then they sued the MPAA for releasing it as an R, not an X. I think this should have been an X for what that was back then, what what that meant back then. I don't think this should be an R. I don't think any kids need to go see this movie.
1: I a thousand percent agree with you. Like you said, my parents were right to hold this out on me, for God's sake.
0: Yeah. It was banned in some cities, it got mixed reviews. The studio, which I think is Warner Brothers, the reason they didn't do a wide release is like, well, it's a horror movie. It went way over budget. It's got no stars. We don't think this movie's going to do well. And then it did huge. And this is part of the motivation of why Jaws, a couple of years later, became the first wide release Mm -hmm. where they released it in all the theaters simultaneously. And that's how we've released movies ever since. Right. Here's a weird one. They chose not to put this film in any African-American neighborhoods. The studio basically said, we don't think black people want to see will want to see this movie. Wow, really? Okay. <laughs> and then of course, African-Americans did go to Westwood to see it, and then they opened it up in all the theaters in the African-American neighborhoods. I just <laughs> think that's weird. So dumb. Um, it made $60.3 in its initial theatrical release, $112 million re- uh, worldwide. It was the number two film of the year behind The Sting. It's probably made around $441 million today. Wow. And it would be, this would be a billion-dollar movie if you adjust for inflation, without yeah, question. Sure. It's the first horror movie nominated for Best Picture. It had 10 nominations. Picture director, actress for Ellen Burstyn, supporting actor for uh, James Miller, supporting actress for Blair, art direction, cinematographer, editing, and it won for Adapted Screenplay and yeah. Sound. By the way, one thing I saw was adapted into a stage play which played with Richard Chamberlain and Brooke Shields on Broadway. Oh! <laughs> that's an odd one. It <laughs> is a very odd one. Something we've been doing lately with our patrons on Patreon is giving them a chance to ask some questions about upcoming films. And here are two of the questions uh, we got. One is from Ryan Lieb, who says, something that's always struck me about this film is how quickly time passes. And important events suddenly seem to have... Im- um, transpired. we give given very little exposition about the characters. You start with Marin in Iraq and jump abruptly to Georgetown. We see Burke, then we hear that Burke is dead. Um, all of these things are jumping around. And he asks, what do you make of this style of writing? Do you think it's written that way to be intentionally disorient the viewer and make them feel like anything can happen? Or is it just a mark of a typical 70s screenplay? Yeah. Plot definitely unfolds unfolded differently back then, but I can't off the top of my head think of another movie that moves in quite this same way as this one. What do you think? Yeah,
1: I think I would agree with that. It doesn't move in quite the same way as anything I've seen before and and watching it this time again, Steve, like I said, I used to, I, have been caught up in the idea that it's just this like, kind of like, you know, it's scary stuff and she's possessed for two hours. There's actually so much more going on, so much more of a slower burn than people actually remember about this movie because the tension and the fear that something horrible is about to happen happen, or something horror-filled is about to happen just permeates every scene, every second of every scene throughout the movie. It's so well-constructed, intensely built uh, or built to like expose the tension just sitting there underneath the whole time uh, that it makes you feel like it's a completely different film than you've ever experienced before and since, to be honest with you.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, it goes back to the thing we were saying before, that faith and doubt are key to this film. Yeah, And if he gave us more explanations, if we saw everything happen, we knew more who Marin was. If we, you know, it's like none of that Iraq scene is explained at all. Mm -hmm. that's what makes it scary is because it's, that's what's going like, well, what's going on? This has meaning, but I don't understand what the meaning is. I don't know how things happen. And that, that, I I think, I think Ryan's point is, is really well taken that it does disorient you to not have the traditional storytelling, to have so many things happen off screen or happen quickly. Um, uh, Our patron, Jay Martin says when William Peter Blatty in several interviews always stated, he wrote the book with no intention to scare or horrify readers and that his his intention was to write a sort of faith-based detective story from a purely narrative structure. Does it work for you, both as a horror film and as a detective story?
1: Well, I I haven't read the book, right? So um, I don't know how to compare the two. You have. Uh, What do you think?
0: Um, I think it's what we said, is I think the book is more of a detective story, and I think that's jettisoned. That's the one area that I think is most different in the film, is we don't have as much of a detective story. Things like I didn't intend to scare or horrify readers if Blatty really said that. I don't know what you're talking about, dude. Yeah, I mean, come on. Thing, dude. It's yeah. an exorcism. Yeah. John, <laughs> do you have final thoughts on The, exorcism, on yes. the Exorcist? Yes. I mean,
1: well, on The Exorcism as well. But yes, on The Exorcist, uh, my final thoughts are this is actually a stellar film to watch on Halloween. I know a lot of people defer to other films. And certainly Halloween, the 1978 film, uh, is a damn classic. But this one is a stellar film. This is a... Um how can I say this is just a well constructed movie that belongs in the conversation of the top one hundred movies ever made? And I haven't always felt that way about this film, but watching it this time, I was able to really sink into the characters and their motivations, and sink into the um, um, the overall um, technique that was used by Freakin'. And, and obviously, some of the questionable stuff he did with actors, I wasn't happy about. But the way the film is done, and the cinematography, and the score, and the way it's edited. All of it just works in conjunction to produce a more contemplative, yet scary as hell horror film uh, than you've ever seen. Because what is scarier than losing your faith in something that has been the construct of your entire life? As uh, uh, Father uh, uh, Karras is exploring here in the movie, his entire foundation has been to be this priest and to have it be shattered now. Uh, uh, even more so after the death of his uh, mom leads him to this moment where he makes such an extreme decision to sacrifice himself and to essentially punish himself at the end uh, for the for the lack of faith and the lack of uh, uh, more bolder decisions made the lack of the mistakes that he deems he's made in his life you know at the end the pre uh, his fellow priest holds his hand and says uh, do you repent mistakes you've made in the past and that tells you that this is what this whole film is is just uh, you know this gentleman uh, this father on the journey uh, to atone for what he deems to be the sins in his life and that's why i think this film works so well is yes it's horrible to be possessed but it's even more horrible to be possessed with a lack of faith in the thing that has been the foundation of your life and your existence?
0: I, first of all, I think this is a very uh, well-made film, despite my feelings about Mr. Friedkin. Hmm. I think, for me, there are some movies where, no matter how many times I watched it, I have th- that same emotional reaction. Yeah. You know, this isn't one of them. That the reaction each time I sort of have gone through it gets less. And and part of that is the nature of horror films is that, well, I know what I, I know where the jump scares are coming. I know yeah. I know what's going to happen. I know where it's going to go. So so my level of dread goes down. But the thing I keep thinking about is this thing that we've been talking about a lot is faith and doubt and how even a little bit of doubt can ruin your faith. And even how just an idea, no matter how unlikely, can become more important than everything else. And I, I think about that in relationship to conspiracy theories, to the occult, psychic powers, all these things. We we want to someone makes an attractive idea and suddenly that our brains, like my brain, could get obsessed with that thought. And those things take on power, even when there's very little evidence of their reality. And this I this movie to me is like okay, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in this. I don't believe in this, this, you know, the science and logic and experimentation and what can be proven. But what if, Mm -hmm. what if this is true? Right. Exactly. What if someone could be possessed? What if, whatever it is, JFK is going to come, JFK Jr. is going to come back from the dead. You know, what if 9-11 was an inside job? Yeah. You know, what if, and, and once you start your brain starts going down this path, And you start seeing things that way, then all sorts of other pieces of evidence pop up. And now you're starting to think, wait a minute, this is starting to make a lot of sense. This is, and it can shake your whole view of reality. Exactly. And again, it goes back to what makes horror movies work. Well, what makes horror movies work a lot is our imagination. It's because we can picture things. Chrissy going swimming is terrifying because you don't see the shark, right? Because you're imagining the shark. Watching this girl in these horrible medical tests and and feeling oh my god They're doing all this torture to her and that's not what's going on because there's a demon in a possession that is It's all that stuff. That's so upsetting and then and that's why I think when you get to the end and once you've seen it a few times Mm -hmm. the, the the exorcism is less scary because now we're not in the worlds of imagination anymore, right? This movie is designed both because it's so it's such a violation in so many ways to yep. really mess with us in a significant way. Oh, and I think exactly. it certainly does. Yep. So that's what we think of The Exorcist. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. Visit us on our Facebook page. Whole bunch of good conversations going on there. You can uh, support the show on patreon.com slash su- the cinephiles and suggest a film. You can uh, listen to our cinephile shorts on Patreon. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or YouTube or Stitcher. Leave your comments on YouTube. Please, please, please leave your reviews on iTunes. They're very important. If they, if they, we don't get constant reviews, then people can't find the show. So if you like the show, please leave a review. If you want to buy the or stream The Exorcist through Amazon Prime, you can do so at cinefiles.net. If you want to follow the show, you can do it on Twitter at Cinna underscore files, on Instagram at the Cinefiles podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris one. John, how about you?
1: uh you can always find me at the roca says on twitter and on instagram of course a lot of stuff i've got going on but please come on over to my youtube channel as well youtube.com slash john roca says steve has been on a few times already with some of the videos most recently so come and enjoy all the things we got going on over there movie reviews uh, politics sports film entertainment tv all of it being talked about there on the outlaw nation channel
0: it is my favorite youtube channel I don't really have other favorites I was going to say but but you're you're, very kind I visit yours quite a bit Um, (laughs) so I think that's it for this week we will hopefully see you next time for a less scary movie on (laughs) the cinephiles happy Halloween